Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Find us on Twitter at political underscore beats. You can also find us on Facebook as well. We ask you to subscribe to our feed for new episodes. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn. Go right to nationalreview.com. Click on podcast, find all the fine NR uh, efforts, including ours. Listen, leave reviews where applicable to help others find the program. We also tell you, go to Patreon and help us out there at patreon.com slash political beats. Support us and help the show stay ad-free as it is in its current iteration. There's entry-level support there for uh, voting privileges and more. Mid-level gets you early access to these programs and at a higher audio quality. And our upper-level bestest friends for early access, the higher audio quality level. Monthly exclusive content episodes, remastered old shows, playlists, and more. All of that at patreon.com slash political beats. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner standing by as always, Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you? Um, you know, we had a long layoff. I've been pretty industrious during the meantime. So I've been gathering up. Uh, even before we tape this show, Scott, I've already gathered up all the music clips together. All this music here, it's really good. I'm very proud of it. Um, you mind if I leave the words to you? <laughs> uh, yes, I'll write the words. I'll send them to you and you figure out what to do with them. And occasionally, I'll, you know what? I, I'll I think this out is the vocal. beginning. This is the beginning of a wonderful partnership. <laughs> Find Jeff on Twitter at Esoteric CD. And our guest for today's program is the CEO of the great website Ricochet.com and the Ricochet Audio Network. Uh, you can find him as longtime producer of the Ricochet podcast and the Glop Culture podcast with Joda Goldberg, Rob Long, and John, John Podhoritz. Also the executive producer of the Hoover Institution's Uncommon Knowledge with Peter Robinson, which is fantastic. And Goodfellows with Neil Ferguson, H.R. McMaster, and John Cochran. He is Scott Imbergut. Scott, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the show, longtime fan of the show. Uh, and as I think I mentioned to you guys at one point i tried to get this show and <laughs> failed um uh so i'm thrilled to be here and i'm thrilled to talk about this band it's a consolation prize we allowed you to be on the show as oh, a guest thank you yes, yes, yes. and uh we uh, we welcome uh, our our topic our band for today's program this is one that has been on the hit list for you i long would say time. like literally since i feel like you know, in that that first time we ever discussed, like talked with each other, squeeze might have come up. It probably like, did. We five years in the making. We've wanted to do this one, so we're glad yeah. to find Scott. And before we uh, we get into squeeze, we give Scott the floor to tell us about uh, about Ricochet, about what he does with Hoover Institution, and, and how you got into this world, Scott. Well, um, I got into this world by accident. I actually started my career uh, in the entertainment business. Um, I was an executive at the Walt Disney Company for seven years and then ran a large production company for about four or five years and made a bunch of features and some TV stuff as well. And um, a neighbor of mine and a guy that I knew through uh, through work was a gentleman named Rob Long, um, who lived about six blocks away from me in Venice. And... Um, we, I hired him at one point to do a rewrite for me on something, and we got to be friendly. And one day we were having coffee at our local hip Venice coffee shop, and he pitched Ricochet to me. And I had, at that point, I had sort of taken some time off um, 
and um, and I said to him, this was like in 2010, I think, uh, you should do a podcast. And he was like, what's a podcast? <laughs> um, and I had this friend, I don't want to go to, I don't want to get too long here, but I, I had a friend uh, named Adam Curry, who was one of the original MTV DJs. Yes. yes. And he was also an inveterate geek. And he, in fact, uh, this is kind of a famous story. He registered MTV.com in like 1984. <laughs> and he said to Viacom at the time, do you guys want this? And they were like, no, they don't want that. <laughs> and then he later sold it to them for a lot of money. Um, but he was an inveterate geek. And he actually did one of the first podcasts. It was called, um, oh, crap, I forget the name of it now, Daily Source File. Uh, Daily Starts Code, sorry. And it was a daily podcast. And like to get it, you could only listen to it through your browser at the time because nobody had MP3 players. And um, I called him up and said, hey, Adam, can you show me how to do this? And he did. And I, like in early 2011, like February of 2011, we did the first Ricochet podcast. Uh, and that's how I sort of got into this and ended up, you know, working for them and for Peter and Rob, uh, Peter Robinson is the founder of, uh, and Rob Lung are the founders of ricochet.com and, and sort of the rest is history. And that's sort of also how I got to the Hoover Institution and uh, ended up doing a bunch of work for them as well. So, and, and, and that, of course, you know, is intimately tied into the story of Squeeze, right? No, I'm just kidding. It is? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 but of course, you know, and, and the thing is, is that, you know, we ask our guests to not only tell us, who, you know, where they come from, but how the heck they found this random band. And I have to interrupt here. I know normally, but because this is, this is, this is a band that's been the subject of one of my favorite jokes on Parks and Recreation, where Leslie Nope says that, like, you know, that, that her little city needs to build something that will stand the test of time, like the Mona Lisa or the music of Squeeze. <laughs> uh, and the joke, of course, is that nobody remembers them, but they're one of the greatest bands of this era. So can you just tell us, Scott, how you got into them first? Well, I'm old. So, I mean, I was into this band when I was in high school and college because I was into Elvis Costello and Joe Jackson and Nick Lowe. And this was, you know, as we'll get into, these guys were all sort of in the same, you know, business and the same kind of genre at the time. And they a lot and they worked together a lot. And it was just a sort of a natural. I don't remember exactly how I got turned on to them, but they were. I mean, again, they were all working together and knew each other. And um, I also, when I was a junior in college, I was in London. I spent a jun my junior year abroad in London. This was 1983. And um, uh, Tilbrook and Difford put on a musical called Labeled with Love, which I went to the premiere of because that's ah. how big of a fan I was. Uh, and I still have the poster for it. I bought the poster from them, had them sign it. Um, and uh, so I, I've been a fan of them since I was, you know, in my early, late teens, early 20s. They do it down on campus and they do it at my feet. Blazing about the beach all day and night, the cricket's creepy. Squinty faces of the sky. A Harold Robbins paperback. Servants drop their balls and drop.
Other Scott, that is. Yes, Other Scott. We, we, we've had shows with two Jeffs before, but first show with two Scots. Uh, oh, yeah. Did I speak out of turn? No, no, no. That was not a, no, no, not at all. No, okay. no, no. But, but, but this, but we're gonna have to get used to the fact that that you know, <laughs> we've had we've had Jeff Defour of National Journal on, and he did three parts with us on Neil Young, yeah. <laughs> and it got it got real confusing at a time when you know Scott was like Jeff, excellent point, Jeff. What do you think? Well, and, yeah. usually when I said that, it was the other Jeff, not you. Exactly. I don't get praise for my, my point. Jeff Pojanowski, Scott, too. We had multiple Jeffs on the Yes, show. Well, yeah. yes these Jeffs, but not the Scots. Anyways, so, Scott, Bertram, well, you go first, and then I will blather yeah, for you. I mean, this is pretty easy, because I think if you if you are if you are into Squeeze at all and didn't sort of grow up with them as uh, as Scott did, there's there's essentially two entry points, I think, and I hit them both. One, of course, is the you know the the re-release of Tempted on the Reality Bite soundtrack, and it's a it wasn't just a re-release; it was a re-recording, which is inferior to the original. But uh, that's one way that the, that the word squeeze became associated with with great music. Even though, of course, Paul Carrick sings vocals, it's not a Glenn Tilbrook lead vocal there. And the other way is that everybody in college. Had a, had a copy of Singles 45 and Under. I mean, everybody had a copy of, of that album. And so uh, Tempted's on there, of course, and it, and it works through you know the, the best portion of their career, that early portion up to, what, 80, 82 or so. And it's one that just was on and around, and you sort of learned it and, and took it in through osmosis. And then you have to, because no one else is playing, you're not, you're not hearing Squeeze except perhaps the occasional attempted or maybe black coffee in bed depending on the radio station you're listening to that's you've a got, deep cut my friend yeah yes. it depends I, I xrt in chicago played that an awful lot uh so right. that, that's one that i heard but outside of that you have to take it upon yourself to find these albums you have to take it upon yourself to find these songs and to uh enter yourself into the world of glenn tilbrook who wrote uh the, the music and chris difford who wrote the lyrics for all these great uh, I almost said spoon. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> spoon on the mind. Uh, there uh, will be comparisons yeah. down the line. Uh, all these great squeeze songs. Back to the mirror in the airpress hotel Where the businessman smiles on the object to sell She's looking at a map Looking at a map Looking at a watch Looking at a watch Bags on the rack Bags on the rack Seems like she's there And uh, as as other Scott pointed out, they they exist in this world, and these names will come up later, along with Elvis Costello and Joe Jackson and, and Nick Lowe, and and those Dave are Edmonds, Dave Edmonds. Yeah. Those are artists that I just love to the core. And so knowing that they were living in those circles and breathing in those circles uh, automatically made me sympathetic to their music. But even if I weren't, it would have blown me away. I mean, it, it just outstanding 
melodies, uh, complicated chord progressions at times, the way Tilbrook writes, and, and the lyrics from, from Difford, especially early on, are almost uniformly great. And the fact that we can do this and hopefully open up uh, people to the world of Squeeze is another great uh, aspect of doing this show. I, I love how... Like sort of as time goes by and as we record more and more of these episodes, the secret centers of our musical loves just sort of emerge into focus because we're finally able to get to artists that have always been huge to us. But like, you know, we weren't gonna do you know episode seven squeeze, right? It just yeah. wasn't gonna happen, right? And so now you find out that like both of us are just huge into this semi-obscure kind of pub rock, new wave art rock. Elvis Costello is the leading figure, right? But then yeah, Nick Lowe. We'll get to Nick Lowe someday folks i promise and then yes now we're doing squeeze this is like this british very british period so british uh, and we'll talk about that but it's not it's not surprising why most of those guys did not cross over onto the u.s charts the jam wasn't part of that scene at all like those guys were all very friendly the jam wasn't part of them but similarly they were never they were from that same era and they were also never going to cross over into america because they were so british and the other point about squeeze is everyone had singles 45s and unders but and i did too as i'm about to tell you but man this is a band that is so much more than just those singles and in fact my version of their greatest hits omits some of those singles because <laughs> i don't even think they're nearly as good as some of the other stuff squeeze did they're more than just a singles act how did i find them because i'm an I'm going to have to say I didn't find them the two obvious ways that Scott said you're supposed <laughs> to find Squeeze. I found them through, uh, first of all, VH1 had a song. You know, they did this little thing on VH1 called, like, you know, Rock from A to Z. And boy, when you were a kid, it was so fun. It was like the greatest hits videos from, like, mostly, a, well, from the beginning of the video era. So it's almost always 80s and afterwards. Um, and they would get to Squeeze, a band I otherwise knew nothing about. And the song Tempted came on. I didn't know anything about them but the song was immediate into it that great vocal and then the thing i noticed about it as i listened to those video well, the history of music a to z shows on vh1 so wait a second the same guy singing that song is also singing yeah. that mike and the mechanics song That's isn't right. he yes all i need is a miracle or and then no, there was uh, another the living mike. years and are oh, the living years someone or, else can saying you hear uh, me running silent running yeah. and i was like wait a second there's this, there's i didn't understand because i this is you gotta understand folks this is 1990 91 
There's no internet. I can't look it up. I didn't know the connections between all these groups and bands, but I was fascinated by it. That was my first introduction to Squeeze. And then I found in the library singles 45s and under on CD. Like everybody else. Took it home. I also took home Babylon and on. That one didn't take. Oh, it still hasn't taken. But singles 45 sold me. And it was only years later that I finally got into the albums and I realized they were, wow, this wasn't just a band that had some clever greatest hits. This was a band that had fantastic fantastic albums as well, particularly during their peak period. Now, I'm willing to offer a defense of some of their later work as well, but there's no doubt that the reason we are all gathered here today, ladies and gentlemen, is to get through this thing called 1977 to 1982, which is the glory years of Squeeze as a weird post-punk new wave act that didn't quite ever know what it wanted to be, even though they were great. And I think the fact that they never quite knew what they wanted to be is what ended up kicking them off course, unfortunately, later on in their career. Now, Scott, do you know the basics of how Squeeze came together, or do you want me to just go through it? It's not even that It's not that complicated, story. but I yeah. do know that it's one of those, yeah. I mean, it could be one of those movie uh, Roger Ebert uh, meet-cute sort of situations. Uh, right. Differed in 74 or so, uh, ended up putting a an ad in uh, a local uh, window, um, you know, a store window, uh, advertising for a guitarist to join his band, although he didn't have a band and he was the only person in the band at the time. And right. apparently, Tilbrook, Glenn Tilbrook, was the only person who responded to the advertisement. So if you wanted to actually start a band, he had one option, and that was Glenn Tilbrook. Pretty and lucky pull, huh? It worked out okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. They added uh, Jules Holland pretty soon afterwards, playing piano and, and keyboards, a lot of piano. A uh, guy named Paul Gunn played drums very early on uh, in the Squeeze iteration. Um, and um, uh, Gilson Lavis came out about a year later to replace Gunn on drums. He'd stay for an awfully long time. And they, you know, this, one of the Squeeze things is they rotate bassists like socks. Um, if you're a bassist, you're not likely staying in Squeeze for an awfully long time. And even keyboardists seem to come in and out of yes. this band pretty frequently, too. I mean, Jules Holland, the reason Jules Holland matters is because Jules Holland had went on to have this bizarre afterlife that some <laughs> rockers in Britain do. They go on to work for the BBC. So, like, yes, the guy presenter. from Mott the Hoople became a producer for all those BBC sessions, Dale Griffin. And then, yeah, Jules Holland became a famous presenter for, like, all these... There's, like, classic radio headsets playing Late Night with Jules Holland. And uh, he's their keyboardist. But, yeah, this is a different Tilbrook show for the most part. Indeed. I mean, they say. wrote essentially... Everything except for a handful of, of songs that have Jules Holland on, uh, on on the music occasionally. Later on, their bassist Keith, uh, Keith uh, Wilkinson would write and sing a song, but it's, you know, it's a different Tilbrook thing and uh, is literally until this day when those guys are the only two from, from this glory era that are still alive, not alive, but still still in <laughs> still in the band and working in Squeeze. Jules um, is not dead. I know, I did Poor choice of words. So they, you know, they kicked around. They played in uh, in Southeast London. Um, I think they played with Dire Straits occasionally, and um, and eventually made an EP called "What pa Packet of Three Is That First EP in nineteen seventy seven, which got the them noticed. It got noticed, and here's the fascinating thing about the first sound of Squeeze on record. All right. What do you, if you the joke that I, I warned the guys before the show began is that the joke I'll be making here is that if you ever think about squeeze, you know because nobody thinks about squeeze at all these days unfortunately. But if you think about them, you certainly don't think about them as a really hardcore post punk 
Sex Pistols influenced band, which is what you get with Packet of Three. I mean, Cat on a Wall, which is a great song, but it, it's 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 just basically unfocused energy. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it's it's riffs and hooks in search of form, but. It's just hilarious to realize that before these guys refined what it was that they wanted to do, uh, they sounded like they could have been, you know, yeah, this, this, this is competing with magazine <laughs> and early buzzcocks on the charts. And it's interesting, too, that that is not the sound that you'd hear on the first album. It is also not the sound that would make them uh, semi-famous later on. It's an almost totally different iteration of the band. It's just, you know, other Scott, do you have any thoughts on this first EP before we move on to the yes. insanity of the first uh, absolutely. album? Absolutely. Um, so I had not heard any of this material until you guys sent it to me the other day. And I was shocked because... It sounded like a completely different band with completely different influences than the ones that I had assumed they'd had for my entire life or since I started listening to them. And it was relevatory because these guys were a punk band. I mean, and I've actually, I've heard them on interviews talk about, the, you know, their punk influence, but I thought they were just kind of genuflecting a bit about, <laughs> or, or, or trying to make them... <laughs> themselves seem cooler than they were, but no. The, the tapes exist. Yeah. The tapes exist. And I had no idea about that. That was that. It was amazing. And, and the thing is, is that you talk about identities and not knowing what they want to be. I mean, this is a band that was just brooded about from like you know, they were they had, the talent was there. Tilbrook wrote this incredible music. He could. He's still young, but he had a, he had a real capability for it. And of course, different could write lyrics. Um, the worst possible thing that could have ever happened to Squeeze, then happened to Squeeze, <laughs> uh, and and that is they they fell into the hands of a right major record label, that not knowing what to do with these people because again they hadn't really fully formed. They weren't punks. They weren't post-punk. They weren't hyper-literate Elvis Costello like rock yet. They weren't any of that. They just had some talent. So what it is, okay, we're going to give you to an Artie Weirdo. And that Artie Weirdo they gave them to to produce their first record was none other than John Cale, formerly of the Velvet Underground, and several very weird solo albums throughout the 1970s, as well as some of the more shockingly depraved depths of cocaine addiction. I think he even bit the head off of a dove on stage not too long ago, Ozzy Osbourne style. This is a guy who was not at his peak and he approached Squeeze, and he saw guys who knew how to write melodies, and he said, you know what? I want to take all those very, very pretty and sweet melodies of yours, and, and I think you should just pervert them. <laughs> make them weird. Make them unlikable. Make them as weird and deranged as you possibly can. Almost as sort of an art rock statement. This has always been my theory. Scott Bertram, you might know, 
what the actual logic about this was, I've never read because I don't want to know. Because I have a beautiful thesis that John Cale ruined what might have otherwise been a somewhat decent album, even though I know I'm lying. Yeah, I, I knew bits and pieces about this UK squeeze story because, as we'll talk about momentarily, the music isn't much to talk about. There's, there's, there's really not much to recommend. Nor... Actually, actually, I think there's a lot to talk about because I think it's aggressively bad. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but I, I know like Kale didn't... Usually a band has a first album, right? And and, and they've been playing in clubs and playing in, for, for, for... It's their for set three, list. Right? They've worked to like a diamond hard perfection. And Kale right? made them throw all that stuff out. He's like, start from scratch. Nothing you've done before can be on this album. So write, 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 write new stuff. Which is, By the way, do you guys know where they got the name for the band Squeeze from? I mean, did they take it from the Velvet Underground they album? They did take yes. it from the Velvet Underground album. Yes, right. exactly. So I, I don't know if Kale, if that was like some sort of homage to Kale or Kale suggested it. I don't they know. Were, they were squeezed before John Kale ever met them because they had that right. first EP. Yeah. Yeah. So then maybe that's why they... That's why they got matched yeah. with him. That could yeah. explain yeah. it. Yeah. Right. Exactly. But anyway, Scott, you were saying. And, and then, you know, Kale got a hold of some of Differ's lyrics and I guess told him, hey, hey, I, I picture this happening like the, the cockpit scene in Airplane with Peter Graves and the young kid. And John Cale brings Chris Difford over and says, Chris, you ever think about writing songs about bodybuilders? Um, it's a strange <laughs> question. And, but he did. I mean, there's a song about bodybuilding on the album. There's a bodybuilder on the cover. But he 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 just he wanted says, to Chris, make them. Chris, hey Chris, you ever think about writing songs about sex masters? It is, as Jeff said, sort of the most perverse way to introduce a band, to make them something they're not, to force them to start from scratch, uh, to to have... He, he suggested, I believe the suggested name of the album was not UK Squeeze, but John Cale wanted to call it Gay Guys. I mean, this was like torpedoing uh, the band before they started in, in essentially every way possible. And as Jeff argues... So this album is just perversely intentional, not intentionally perhaps, but just bad, aggressively bad music on UK Squeeze. 
they went along with it, which is the only reason why I can't, you know, say for sure that like this was like him, Kale, in some perverse mode, like determined to ruin a group. You know, like to, you know, so like you know, I hate these people for whatever reason. Maybe he's just like in a horrible mind frame of mind from drugs, and he just does something destructive. But different Tilbrook should have known better. All right, they went along with it. They said yes. So I blame them for it. But here's the hilarious thing about it. This is an album that has almost nothing. I want to actually talk a little later about how bad some of it is. But it has nothing good to recommend it. There's a song here called Strong in Reason. I was wondering if I should like talk about it as a highlight. But it's only adequate. It's Otherwise, this album is unrelieved garbage, except for all of a sudden, right at the beginning of the second side, after making you sit through all this crap, boom, pops up with... One of Squeeze's most famous songs, their first hit single, and the single that, of course, introduced them to the world. Take me, I'm yours. Doesn't mean a thing. It's about riding across the desert in a camel, Arabian <laughs> bazaars. It's it's nonsense lyrics. It's just beautiful sonics and a beautiful melody. And it's the one thing that has any worth really on this record, in my opinion. Of course, it is. It's got that wonderful galloping uh, drum beat and I, I like that that uh, I call it like a superhero entrance music guitar. Do 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 do. A squishy synth that would sort of come back in a few ways uh, down the road. And one of our first introductions to the way that they could sing together, the way that Difford and, and Tilbrook could sing together, uh, you know, di- different different octaves. Um, and you had this very high tenor uh, Tilbrook with this very, uh, you know, extremely English bloke, uh, you know, sounding Chris Difford. And they'd sing together in many times in, in the future, but we hear it here on Take Me, I'm Yours, which is... It's, it, it's, a, it's a unison style that you would hear actually repurposed later on on Suede, another band I love from the mm. 90s. Uh, and David Bowie also did a lot of that in the early 70s as well, and I think maybe they nicked it from there, but of course he was doing it with himself in different octaves. But it, yeah, you, it, it, almost all of Squeeze's hit signals, you've got this weird low guy singing, <laughs> bah, 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 bah. That's that's different. Croaking all those lines. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's not really singing. I mean, if you see them live, Different doesn't really sing. He sort of does this, this sort of. It's he grunts in time. It's actually almost <laughs> speaking. Exactly. Um, he's not a singer, and it, it's it's weird because Tilbrook has this beautiful voice, um, and it, it does work when they're when they're singing together. But boy, when Different takes a solo, not good. Not good. <laughs> 
He unfortunately, uh, there will be songs that we talk about later that I, I that I think are unfortunately ruined by the fact that he sang them. Yes, exactly. But uh, but 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 uh, before we move on from this 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 really wretched album, first of all, Scott, do you yes. have any thoughts on it? Well, first of all, um, the name UK Squeeze. Did you guys know the backstory to that? Well, I mean, I know that there was some band in America called Squeeze that like tight squeeze. For, tight, tight, squeeze. Were tight squeeze. So they had to release. They were only called UK Squeeze in here, here right. and Australia, right? Um, uh, because of name, naming conflicts, and, and it's, been, it's long been forgotten because no, but that band never amounted to anything. Exactly, and they ended up dropping it two or three years later. So that was that. That's the backstory with that. Um, again, I. I, uh, I I agree with everything you said about "Take Me on Yours." It's by far the best song on that album. Um, they, it, it's, it still holds up today, I think, really well. Um, and it's just, it was, it, it was just fun and catchy. Um, uh, and um, I, I, again, I sort of re-listened to it in preparation for this, and I hadn't heard it in, you know, several years. It just holds up great. It's just fun. Before we move on from this album, I actually need to put it through its paces because I'm angry. Okay. <laughs> I'm angry about how aggressively shitty this album is in several ways. I'm, as I said earlier when I introed it, I would swear there were times where Tilbrook, who wrote the music here, actually sat down at a keyboard and said, "Okay, here are the chords," and then he literally just took his hands and he said, "Okay, now here," and then like two keys to the left there to make weird chords that nobody wants to hear. Which is how you get a song like Bang Bang. This is a song that sounds <laughs> our old friend from the show, CJC Romello. When I, I tweeted about this the other day, he said it sounded like somebody had staple guns or give, <laughs> give it a lobotomy to, uh, oh gosh, I can't remember the guy he was talking about. But it, it, it is a song where every single chord change is wrong, every single part of the melody is wrong. And it seems to almost have been aggressively written been written to throw you off to make you not like it um that to me uh, i mean just knowing a little bit about how songs are written can only have been the product of calculation they were doing it on purpose i don't respect them more for that that's the thing it doesn't make me think oh how clever of you to do something that annoys me because i know you're doing it on purpose no you're annoying me all right in fact it makes me like you less if you're annoying me on purpose and that's why it was so strange for Squeeze to sort of have lost their identity on this record. The one song there, Take Me, I'm Yours, it's really at the end of the day the only one you'll need from it. It's fascinating to me that there's one other genuinely good song on this record, and it's called Model. And it's a relic of their post-punk era, their sort of Sex Pistols-sounding, loud, thrashy era. But even on this album recording of it, 
it sounds like it's just stifled. It's suffocated in gauze. It's badly produced. It's, it's badly, badly recorded too. And and there's a B-side version of it and a BBC version of it. The B-side version of it is so much better. And it sounds like it's fire and it's flame and it sounds like a live band playing in a club in front of you. And all of a sudden you see like, well, that's why this band got a record contract for Christ's sake. She's ahead of a time fashion. She's never lazy. They almost lost it with that second album because they submitted a record. Maybe they were demoralized or maybe they weren't paying enough attention. But the second time they went to the well with EMI, they submitted Cool for Cats and EMI said no. Scott, do you actually know the story of this, Bertram? Do you know I the don't. story of it? I do not. I don't think I do either. Well, I, I, just, like, before, before, I just like to put in one word yeah. for forgiveness on first albums. Yeah. Which is like if, you know, if. These are people that are learning their craft. They're 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 usually very very young. They've usually never been in a studio before. They have no idea what they're doing. The fact that they even got one song out of this is something of a minor miracle, in my opinion. I mean, I, I, we can count probably on maybe two hands the amount of great debut albums out there at all. And um, I'm, you know. As somebody who's spent a lot of time reading people's first scripts or reading people's first <laughs> columns or reading people's first, you know, reported they're, 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 they're gawky baby bird steps, yes. Exactly. Yeah. So let's, I, I, you know, I, I, I applaud people for sticking with it. I applaud record companies for not dumping people after, you know, mediocre debuts. I just I had to I had to put that in there. It's no, very that, rare that we get great debut albums. That is actually the perfect way to lead into the second album because that's actually in the best possible way what happened. That they, they submitted Cool for Cats, their second record to the label, and the label said, "No, it's not good enough. You can find the songs that were dropped from it. They're they're well, they're really hard to find. Squeeze is one of the worst represented bands on YouTube. Incidentally, it's another argument, a complaint for another day, but." Uh, these songs are sort of funny. They're a little primitive. They're childlike. They're they they almost feel like you know, they're again a band that hasn't fully focused. EMI said no. So what Squeeze did is they came back a little later. They retooled it and they released the album that we now know as Cool for Cats. And this is where the show begins in all of its glory because this is a fantastic album. It's almost as if a different band emerges in terms of the songwriting the lyric writing mm. and the songwriting and the instrumentation alone it is a quantum leap forward
are songs here. I can praise almost every track on this. And in fact, my my main complaint is that I like the single versions of some of these songs more than the ones on the album. But yeah, this is a scrappy album. It's still not squeezed at their peak, but this is their first truly obligatory record, in my opinion. I agree 100%. This has at least four great songs on it, in my opinion. We can go through them. Um, And the production is much better, and the recording is much better, and uh, the writing is terrific. There's just some really great phrases and 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 wordings in this on this album it's i mean i don't know what happened between the first and the second album but they really came up a lot i mean is it maybe the record label literally must have put the fear of god into them because they, they literally <laughs> just like i you know what it's like the way john fogarty must have felt all throughout ccr's ride it's like i could be back to you know without bus fare to get home from lodi at some point so i'm gonna <laughs> i'm gonna do what i can but yeah Mr. Bertram, your thoughts? It's a fantastic album. It's one that has actually grown on me over the years. Not that I didn't like it the first time I heard it, but going back and listening again and revisiting, um, boy, Cool for Cats is fantastic. And it starts with the the sea change in the way the band presents itself. Uh, Difford's lyrics, lyrically, this, this is one of their absolute finest albums. And then musically, of course, Tilbrook comes through and, and, and puts it to this just wonderfully melodic um, uh, music. You go up and down. So I know that we've talked about, we just recently talked about Up the Junction. So I'll, I'll start there. Up the Junction is the best song on this album. It's one of the best songs in their career. And as I argued on a recent exclusive content edition, it's one of the saddest songs ever recorded. Uh, for such a, um, it, it, it starts so bright. It starts with so much hope and possibility. These people meet, and there's romance, and there's a birth, and there's a kid. But you go from romance and birth to a ruined relationship in about three minutes. It's just insanely well written. There's seven verses, no chorus. You don't hear the title of the song until the very last uh, line, the very last line of the song. It is totally carried by the chord and key changes and the different way that Jules Holland plays essentially yes. on every pass through the song. And you get to a point where the, the, the baby's born, there's a there's a young uh, young girl, and there's this huge last key change that happens, and all of a sudden... Um, she's two years older. She's two years older, and they're not together anymore, and he's been drinking, and he's been gambling, and uh, he's, in a, he's in bad, bad shape. And, um, and, and, and the sadness is not from that, there. That, that moment, that slurry keyboard sound on the final verse yep. where he's just alone there in the kitchen. That's what, You'll hear this when we put the clips in, folks, but like the way Holland just chooses organ tones and Beautiful. lines here, it just follows the narrative perfect. Yes. So that last line, alone here in the kitchen, I feel there's something missing. I beg for some forgiveness, but begging's not my business. And it almost sounds like it's drunk, just like he must be drunk to be saying this right now, because this is a drunken confession of a song. Yeah, and she won't write a letter, although I always tell her, and so it's my assumption I'm really up the junction. The sadness, by the up the junction, a British term meaning, you know, up shit Up the creek. Right. Yeah. And so the sadness here is in multiple layers. He won't change. Uh, he won't even reach out. He's just assuming things are broken. He's not gonna. He's nothing is gonna be. Fixed. 
fixed from this the first five verses this seemingly you know picture book romance turns very uh very sad very cruel very very quickly uh it's just it's again i I think it's one of the saddest songs ever written and i'm gutted every time that last key chain hits key change hits and we go now you know now it's two years now she's two years older her mother's with a soldier it guts me every time it's just a fantastic it's the first and uh, one of the best marriages of Difford's lyrics with Tilbrook's music. And now she's two years older, her mother's with a soldier. She left me with my drinking, became a proper stinging. The devil came and took me from Barter Street to Bookie. No more nights by the telly, no more nights snappy spelling. Alone here in the kitchen, I feel there's something missing. For some forgiveness But begging's not my business And she won't write a letter Although I always tell her And so it's my assumption I'm really up the junction Speaking of the music, I happened to catch during the pandemic. Uh, Glenn Telbrook did a lot of content on Instagram, uh, including some amazing covers, which I really recommend um, that people go search it out. Uh, but he also did a bunch of Q and A's on there, and at one point he talked about up the junction and the music, um, and he dropped this tidbit, which kind of blew my mind. He said on this Instagram thing that the music was partly inspired by Bob Dylan's Positively 4th Street, which I don't know about you guys, but in a million years, I would have never made that association. I make it. Um, it makes sense to me. It's And then Bob Dylan's is It's just taking those same chords and inverting the notes. I can see why he did it. I could not make that connection that you just made, um, but that makes perfect sense to me. But I thought that was really interesting that they, that he was reaching that far back for musical inspiration and in a completely different genre also. I mean, this is, as, as both Scots would agree, it, it's one of Squeeze's greatest songs, but it's a song that almost sits outside the album as just a perfectly composed mm-hmm. narrative that... You know, Mr. Bertram, who I, I guess I'm just going to have to call you Mr. Bertram for the rest of this show to save time. Mr. Bertram, my friend, said it best. And I won't go through the narrative the way he did over again, but I need to reemphasize how much the music is sympathetic to it. That Holland keyboard line changes and it changes. If there's like seven verses. It's actually six verses, but there's a middle section. Yeah. I worked all through the winter, the weather brass and bitter, and then when he goes to that little again that that weird this morning at 450 i took her rather nifty down to an incubator the chords that have been playing all throughout the song change they change those are not the same chords they're relative chords to what you hear already which is why the fact that there's no chorus and there isn't a lot of contrast never chat never matters i worked all through the winter the weather some bitter
a song that is also, again, just so British with all of its slang mm-hmm. that right. when we ask ourselves, why don't people love Up the Junction? <laughs> well, the, the name of the song is Up the Junction. You have well, to even explain what the title means. Of course, the first line of the song, I never thought it would happen to me, and the girl from Clapham. I mean, when I got to London in 1983, I had to go to Clapham because I had heard this song 700 times. Like, I got to go see this place. Well, she dealt out the rations. Yeah, I mean, yeah. just like you're. Yeah, just, no, it's just, it's just, it's just an amazing piece of storytelling, also. Mm-hmm. And it, um, yeah, again, it is so thoroughly keyed to like, like British. That's right. Urban life, like it is that time. It is that place and of course it would be massive for that for those people you know in that city but you know yeah it wasn't it wasn't I, I did an entire tour of places in london around or actually the entire uk uh, that i'd heard in songs i went to the hoover factory i went to <laughs> Lapham, i went to, you know all of these places you know i would um all of the places mentioned in the class in the clashes songs I, I went to also I had to see them I because I've just been hearing them in my head for years did you go to Battersea power station of course to see, like, I now it's a you know it's a, it's an office building now at the time it was <laughs> sort of an abandoned power plant but it's been it's been gentrified uh, it doesn't have that urban gloom that it once no, had it not anymore <laughs> it did then 1983 it did Okay, well, this uh, album is full of lyrics that are just as good as the one on Up the Junction. And the next one I have to turn to is the title track, which is a, the weirdest thing ever to be a single. It was a hit in Britain. Oh, God help you in America. Um, this is the song Cool for Cats. It's the only time where I'm glad Chris Difford sings. Yeah, I think I have over. one other note in my notes somewhere that says this is the right he's the right choice for this song. But yeah, School for Cats is pretty much about it. No, but nobody could do that, right? <laughs> because the whole point, this is a song about Yabos just celebrating boredom. This is actually the thing is, is it's written so casually and so snarkily and sarcastically that you don't realize how incredibly writerly it is. This is maybe in an underrated way, in an underrated way, the best lyric that Chris Difford ever wrote, and it is a song about you know, complete effing boredom. Everybody in this song is bored. From like the, the, the kids playing cowboys and Indians at the front, where like you know <laughs> the squaw is with the corporal. It's like the girl, the local neighborhood girl, is just tied up. She, she doesn't <laughs> mind the language; it's the beating she don't need. You know, it's just like oh, I'm used to all this crap. All right, she's bored. You know who's also bored? The cops are bored. They're bored. They're so bored watching the criminals going up and out and doing their thing that they, it's almost like it's become train spotting. That second verse, which no American could ever understand, where the Sweeney's doing 90 because they got nowhere to go, which is me. You just imagine them doing donuts in the parking lot, right? They're doing 90 miles an hour. You know, they get a gang of villains and a shut up at Heathrow, which is Heathrow. But this is, again, they're like watching the criminals go in and out of the justice system, arresting them, sending them back out. Everyone's bored. The kids are bored. The criminals are bored. The cops are bored. You're bored at the pub. You're bored at the disco. Everyone's bored, and everyone tells you that it's cool for cats. Shape up at the disco, and I think I've got a pole. I ask her lots of questions as she hangs onto the wall. I kiss her for the first time, and then I take her home. I'm invited in for coffee, and I give the dog a bone. She likes to go to discos, but she's never on her own. I said I'll see you later and I'll give her some old chat But it's not like they on the TV when it's cool for cats, it's cool for cats
by the way, uh, the title of the song, uh, I'm told, is the, the Cool for Cats was, a, was the name of sort of the a British version of American Bandstand. It was one of the first TV shows that booked rock music acts. Right. Uh, so that's where that came from. Again, so much slang. Yeah. You you literally need almost a text, or you need to be a, like a dork like me. Like I just love <laughs> I'm an Anglophile, and I love like British culture, and like I couldn't have been able to explain what this song meant to you until I was a solid 35 years old. So <laughs> it's like I just despair, Mr. Bertram. Your thoughts? Yeah. Um, the first half of this album, you still see a few places where the kind of interesting. Um, ideas on UK squeeze bleed through a bit but they're they're executed so much better I think nowhere uh, better than on slap and tickle which is the first song of the album it is a little bit of take me on yours brought to the next level you have a synth heavy arrangement with this very locked in sort of uh, rhythmic meter uh, but it has it's worth that... noting by the way that the single version of that yes. amps that up even more yes. it's even more synths it's even more rhythm uh, right? but it has that sort of edgy coolness that they would be able to bring to uh, songs at times and I, I I love the way it swings from sort of uh, you know A to B to C and, you know, if you ever change your mind it gets real hard and then you know, the staccato rhythm of the of the slap and tickle chorus Slap and tickle. Sex. Yeah. That's what it is. Right. Okay. Just well, so you didn't know, you know. Same thing with the next one I want to mention, which is it's not cricket. Uh, first of all, a sport no one knows about uh, and a phrase no one knows about, which is <laughs> British for uh, essentially unsportsmanlike conduct. It's not, you know, it's not <laughs> yeah, a yeah, yeah, fair yeah. thing to it, do. It's not sporting. I, you know, I could tell you about it, but it would put me in it. It's not right. cricket. And that's the lyric. And so, but it's another, it's a great differed lyric. It has, that brings back sort of those squishy synths that we had on, uh, uh, from the first album, and um, and and uh, I love those be- those bells, those bells, and the, the bells even get a solo on "It's Not Cricket." It's a great uh, song, and I, I, I'll I'll kind of set up Jeff here by mentioning another fantastic song. Here is "Hard to Find." I mentioned in my notes here they they do this sort of it's a little bit on slap and tickle too. I guess they do kind of this this foreboding uh, coolness very well in places, and certainly on "Hard to Find." Uh, it has this ghostly piano melody that that follows the lyrics throughout the song and i hate to say when jeff is right but jeff is right spoon would murder a cover of hard to find
Right up their alley. Yeah, yep, I agree. I agree. Um, can I put a word in for "Goodbye Girl" on this album, which it, I, it's it's up there for me. It might. There are times when I listen to this album where I think this song is better than "Cool for Cats" or even better than "Up the Junction." Um, it's a, another. It's another story song of theirs. It's a story. It's a, it's a story of a one night stand, um, and it's just beautifully written. It's got a very good and catchy tune to it. Um, and the vocal on it, I think, is one of their best. Um, and it's also been covered several times. Uh, the Shins did an amazing cover of this where they changed um, they changed the location from uh, from uh, uh, to Boston rather than, um, I can't now, I can't remember where the location of the song is. Help me with this. There's, it's mentioned in the, in the first line of the song that I can't remember now. Um, Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, but uh, the, the Shins did a, did, did a great, you can cut all that out. The Shins did a great cover of this, as did um, Colin Malloy of the Decembers, which is really hard to find. I have it. But um, uh, the fact that all these people did this cover, to me, points up, you know, just what, what a great piece of music it is. I've lost people like to do covers of that song and this is something i was actually gonna i, I will bring up in more detail when we get to talking about pulling muscles from a show is because vocally it is a very tricky song to perform uh it, it requires a lot of a lead singer and one of the things that we're going to find out about tilbrook as a lead singer as as these songs evolve and these these albums go on is how talented he is at doing some really actually difficult stuff this is one of these songs that, that was one of my – not one of my key, my top ones, but this is an audition song level. And you'll notice it because of that chorus because it goes octaves. He goes, mm, the sunlight on the line. Oh. He just jumps up and down, up does and down, that all up the and time. down. It's just he crazy. Does that, and he does that on another nail from my heart. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It's just like – well, we, again, and, and, and it serves the effect of the song. It's like pounding it into us block of wood but that is not easy to do and that is a really impressive aspect of goodbye girl by the way scott i know it's so hard for you to ever concede anything to me so thank you for giving me the point on hard to find (laughs) that song was spoon before spoon was spoon and if like instead of having that sort of like late 70s uk production values it had like you know modern 2006 era it would have been on kill the moonlight and it would have been right next to small stakes um the one last one i think i want to say something about his review oh yes i forgot yeah oh my goodness well okay sky then you take it then my friend go no i you it's it's just it's the second song of the album and it's 
I think it's dinky celebrity in their dinky bow ties, thinking that they're movie stars or they're real stars. <laughs> but of course, they're playing the Blackpool scene. You know, scene. It's just like so small. Yeah. Small beer. I I, I think uh, melody wise, that's an amazing song. It's almost de- it's deceptively easy. Like they just toss off a song like review, and it's a quick one. It's sort of two and a half minutes. But you know, the the just the verses. Da 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 da. Yeah, yeah. Reach out the you know the Blackpool season isn't very far. Reading commercials on page three, that kind of easy tight harmonies. That's what got them compared to Lennon and McCartney. Right. That's this is the beginning. That's the first time. Absolutely. That's the first time. And 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 the writing. you know the the Penny Lane type storytelling writing. Exactly, but it's that also that briskness with a, a McCartney-like primarily melody that you first see on Cool for Cats. And gosh, you know, this was a great, great, great album. There are three hit singles on it, of course. Goodbye Girl came out before the record. Again, single version is better. Then you have Up the Junction. Then you have Slap and Tickle. Uh, and then they had like basically, I think what we would all agree is the single most famous Christmas single of all time. Scott, I mean – you and I, when we did our most famous Christmas songs, this is the one we led with, right? Christmas Day by Squeeze? I believe so. And it's one that I actually was unaware of for a long time until I was, uh, uh, you know, for, for, the, for the college station here at, at Hillsdale uh, during the Christmas season. The students are gone, obviously, on Christmas break, and I'm traveling to family, too. So we, we switch our formats and just go, you know, wall-to-wall Christmas, holiday music. But that means uh, I get the fact I get the chance to curate all of it. So <laughs> I like to think we might have the coolest Christmas song uh, playlist on any radio station anywhere. But back when I started doing it, I guess six or seven years ago, is one of the first times that I came across uh, Christmas Day, which is um, it's just it's I mean it's a squeeze Christmas song. It makes no sort of um, con- uh, uh, what do I want to say. Um, they literally recorded it because they thought, hey, like, why don't we just have a Christmas single like yeah. Lennon did, like Happy Christmas War is Over. It'll be played every year, you know, in the charts. And unfortunately, it, it did not. Unless it, unless it was your radio unless station. It's here. It, it isn't. But, but they don't, fun what I want to say is they don't make any concessions, the word I could not find. Concessions yeah. to sort of make it a Christmas melody. It's, it's a squeeze song with a set of Christmas lyrics on it, which probably is why it was not so beloved at the time. But I, I still like it. Mary and children were so surprised with Admirers around the crib Joseph, Malcolm, and Wise, 
I don't know if you're familiar with this one, are you? I do know it. I, I, I really like it. I also would like to put in a word as long as we're doing B-sides off this album for going crazy. Oh, well, that's the B-side of this, and that was where I was going next because it's the last gasp of that post-punk era squeeze. It is, but it's also very poppy. And it's yes. also got a great du- duet between Different and Tilbrook on it. And it also, it really messages sort of uh, craziness and in- instability and edginess. Um, and it's, it's, it's actually kind of a minor masterpiece off of this album. And yeah. I don't know why it wasn't on the album. It should have been. There's a girl in my mind and she lives in the pine by the lines of the silvery moon. I mean, and I, I guess what it emphasizes is that even if they were leaving that sort of raw post-punk sound behind, they were never going to quite stop being, at least during their glory days, not going to stop being, um, what's the word, argy-bargy? Uh, herky-jerky, I think, is the way you would tr- pronounce that or translate that word from British English to American English. And this takes us to, to 1980, and gosh, you know, it's going to be a throwdown fight between, I think, for most of us, this or the next one. Is this the greatest Squeeze album of all time? This has certainly got three of the most, like, immediate punch-you-right-in-the-face Squeeze singles you've ever heard. When you got that singles, 45s and under set, this was the backbone of it. When you got to this part of it, you're like, oh, man, this is why everybody loves these guys. You should check out that album. You never got around to checking that album, you fool. You should check out Argie Bargie. Mr. Bertram, want to take it away? You want me to start? I, I can. Um, this, this, I think it's their best album. Uh, uh, I think it's, it's my favorite album. I think it's their best album. I mean, there's, there's certainly contenders. Arguments will be made. Uh, but I think front to back, uh, this is them at their absolute best. And it also includes uh, what is almost certainly my favorite song of theirs, which includes... There's a lot of favorites going on here, which includes, I believe, my favorite guitar solo of all time. And, and that is another really? nail in my heart. Um, I, I, I think that that is their best song. I think that that I'll talk a bit about that's your song. little favorite guitar solo of all time. I think I can't think of one that I like better. Hey, you know what? It's the first song on the album. So start there. Well, why is this, an, another nail from my heart? It just opens with. It is the most unconventionally formatted single you'd ever hear, and every second of it is pure joy. Scott, take it away. It's awesome. I I, want to start with the guitar solo because, again, it's my favorite part of the song. But it comes in a totally unexpected place. It comes where the second verse would go just after the chorus. So it's very early on in the, in, in, in the song. I think one of the reasons I like it too is it, it acts as a verse replacement, right? It's not just taking the place, uh, it's not just sort of bridging the song from one place to another. It is the second verse. The solo is the second verse. And it's so melodically perfect. Um, 
it is. It's, it's just perfect timing. Technically uh, proficient, of course. It's extremely well planned out. Those final moves that that Tilbrook does before they swing into that that little pre-chorus just makes it makes it for me. I, and I I I, I love. That index solo finger, so index finger and middle up, index finger, middle up. I know I taught yep. myself that guitar solo, but step painfully by step on the guitar. And see, I don't play, so I can't I can't describe it the same way you did. But yeah, that that, that the, the very end of that is just is just total perfection. It slams right into that pre chorus into, into into the second chorus of the song. Um the uh, you know lyrically this is a, is a it's a different broken heart uh, it's, a, song. it's a breakup song your girl's packing up and yep. leaving you because you've just been a you've been a fool and you've had your head in the clouds called a friend and made arrangements um, and then he, of course he goes down to the bar to kill his uh, uh, to kill his sadness and the, and the barkeeper's there to find a nail uh, the barkeeper and the piano man's there to find a nail another nail for his heart played um, by Jules Holland in the video it's pretty fun too well the, the video's it. even perfect too because Jules doesn't play on this song until <laughs> the very the final little piano arpeggio like the last three seconds of the song is the only right. part that Jules Holland appears on the track and it's the same way in the video in which he's pushing this piano across whatever town they're in in Britain and he finally gets there as they're done and he plays this little arpeggio and that's it uh, so that the video suits it well too uh, I think it's one of uh, Gavin, uh, the drummer's best moments. It has this great swing drum groove to it. I love the three, four different wind-ups you get to close the song. Um, man, and it's only, all of that is like two and a half minutes. It's just a perfect pop song. I think it's the best, I think it's their best song. It's my favorite Squeeze song with my favorite solo of all time. I can't. Um, I can't say that it's my it's my favorite song. It's up there. It's top three probably, but I can't say it's my favorite. I'd also like to just put in a word for Glenn Tilbrook's guitar playing and his singing, especially when you see them live. Um, he's doing both uh, often simultaneously, which is really hard to do. Um, Jeff will know that better than me, but um, it's it's an, it, it's sort of an incredibly impressive feat. Um, again, I think this song is just, it's just, it's just beautifully done. It's beautifully written. It's beautifully played. It's moving. It's emotional. You, you sit, you, you immediately sympathize with the guy who's, you know, who's in this situation because everyone's been in it at one time or another. Um, 
it's just it's it's again it's 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 kind of a masterpiece. And this album, this is the one that I heard first. Um, it, you know, when I was a senior in high school, and I just was blown away by it. I just could not believe that. I was like, who are these guys, and why have I never heard of them before? And um, this is the album that made me a lifelong fan. Um, I mean, it, it's I. I think there's maybe one track on this album that I'm less than a hundred percent on, um, but everything else is fantastic. One last thing I'll point out about another nail for my heart, and it's a perfect transition into the other song, the other massive single that starts this album, is you. You know, as 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 Mr. Immergut here pointed out, you learn how good a singer Glenn Tilbrook is. Mm-hmm. I mentioned this earlier uh, when I said, like, you know, the, the way he does octaves, you know, do-do-do, do-do-do on Goodbye Girl. Well, I mean, think about another nail from my heart. Here at the bar, the piano, it's found another nail from my heart. He's not only singing octaves there, you got to hit every note to not sound obnoxious, but you've got to hit the syllables correctly as well, which is why I think the song that really opens this record, Pulling Muscles from a Shell, is not only one of the most amazing pop singles, of the British 1980s, I would say, well, I mean, this is embarrassing. I'm just going to confess it. You know, I used to do a lot of vocal stuff. I used to sing, um, you know, in, in groups. And, you know, you have two audition pieces. Your first one's a big old torch ballad that shows off your pipes, <laughs> right? The second one, when you get a callback, it's something that shows off precision. What Glenn Tilbrook is capable of doing on pulling muscles from a shell vocally is one of the most amazingly dexterous displays of precision, not just because every single melodic change on that song feels like you're getting sucked underneath the carpet. You know, the maid Marion on her tiptoed feet. It's like literally you're getting sucked underneath the couch when you sing that. All right. But to do it with those syllables, the her and the feet is hard. It is really hard to That's sing right. what he does and to sing it well and to sing it in that kind of crabbed and bizarre melody. I think somebody – we were talking you know, about Squeeze on Twitter the other day and somebody actually said like you know, a lot of these you know, Squeeze songs that are classics, in theory, they shouldn't work on the page. They sound like they were like, again, Frankenstein's monster <laughs> stapled together. These chord changes should not work together. They are sold by the conviction which Glenn Tilbrook sings those words. Anybody else handling them, anybody else with less skill as a vocalist would fail. And that is why pulling muscles from the shell, instead of being a failure, is one of the most exciting f***ing rock songs I'll ever hear.
thought maybe we could have a little discussion about this. So we all agree that this song is amazing. We all agree that it is a it is a you know, beautifully told story, beautifully produced song. It didn't even appear on the charts in the United States. Well, I mean, I, you would have thought with the Harold Robbins paperback reference. It's literary look. too. But why? I just again, we, you know, we can we can have a discussion maybe later about... because you know, try to explain to people what doing it down on Camber Sands yeah. means. I mean, that's the first line of the song. They do it down on Camber Sands. And the second line is they do it at Waikiki, so they balance it. Well, even that's exotic for America in 1980. You know? I mean, the thing is, it's just like it's about a life of class envy. That's the song. It's about like you know, you see all these rich people aging about. Yes, I love they're that. All, the, they're all they're all posing for one another, trying to pretend that they have you know that they're they're better off than they really are. And then the, at the end of the day, they 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 load the boat up behind the car and truck it back home. <laughs> so your theory is is that they simply were just too British for American audiences. Yeah, basically. Uh, Do you disagree? There were so many British bands at the time who were doing similar types of things. That well, it's the same reason. It's the same reason the Kinks never broke through in a major way with some of their best work. Village Green didn't work here, and uh, Arthur didn't really work here. And they went through a whole period in which some of the Kinks' best music didn't really cross over. They were just very British with British allusions and British references. I'm I mean, thinking about the best songs on this record that we haven't even discussed, and all of them are so British. Separate beds. We're talking about going to see the cliffs in the morning, you know, the Dover cliffs. Like that's such a British reference. Or uh, I think I'm Go Go. Mm -hmm. Talking about like I'm going to the Netherlands and like all of the porn in the Netherlands, and now I'm going to Buckingham Palace. These are so very British in their in their location. never been to the, to the UK at, the, at this time it sounded it, it made it, it sounded exotic it made it, it made it interesting to me I just and and they were such beautifully put together pop songs which is ultimately what attracted me to these guys and I just I cannot understand why this album did not break through at the time or even now it's still sort of a you know a, a cult classic at best I mean, listen, even if you don't like, you know, the Britishisms, everybody still knows how to groove to a Farfisa beat, right? That's right. That's right. You know, like, like that, that good old Elvis Costello Farfisa beat. Do you love that song as much as I do, Mr. Bertram? Because that's actually one of my favorites secretly on this record. I do. I, I, you mentioned there's one song you don't absolutely love. I have one, too. It's, it's, it's Here Comes That Feeling. I don't over the top love that song. It's one that, again, differed sings and i don't think he sings extremely well and jeff would argue that maybe different even couldn't sing that song extremely well <laughs> yeah I, I, I like that song a lot 
musically, but I don't think either Difford or Tilbrook were properly equipped to do it justice, which is kind of why, you know, the Paul Carrick solution offered itself later on. Yeah. You uh, know? I want to talk, you mentioned I Think I'm Go-Go, which is, it, that takes the music to another level. Wow. Um, that is just an incredible song. And, and the reference that I, I caught this time around, or at least uh, perhaps a reference or perhaps just uh, reminiscence, uh, Cheap Trick doing uh, Heaven Tonight, the title track from that album, or some of their stuff on Dream Police, where you have this this combination of, of synth and string together. And certainly it's kind of Beatlesy too, but I think about those those Cheap Trick tracks and very close. I love that sort of strange creepiness, and it goes perfect with the, with the lyrics. Well, speaking of strange creepiness. Speaking of strange creepiness, Scott, I have to ask, is this the other song that you had sort of earmarked as saying, I'm glad Chris Difford sings a lead? No, it was not, partially. actually. Although, I, I am, but this is not the he one does, I marked. You know, he's the only that's a partial, but right, that verse that is middle. actually perfect. And it, the way that, well, you know, he's sort of he's sort of blanketed in this echo, right? Because on that verse he sings. Right. So it's not quite 100% different. <laughs> it's not totally in your ear. <laughs> um, and then before but, I... But, but he gets the robotic, he gets the robotic yes. zonked out vibe. Yes, so you like, don't know I'm, where I'm you are. Like a zombie you don't know where you're these, going. Yeah. I'm, exactly. And that's the, the, the whole song is about just like almost like sleepwalking through fame you know where like you know I'm, I'm going from here i'm going to there i'm playing this gig i'm going to that club i'm seeing this weird bizarre sex show oh amsterdam is weird and that's of course a huge part of it um and then oh now i'm going to buckingham palace and it's just oh i'm riding on this train and i don't know where i'm going i think i'm go-go i think i'm go-go and then those strings and the, uh, is it mellotron or something similar to it just give you that queasiness it, it, that sense it's a beautiful melody and when he when when, when tilbrook breaks through and he says you know i got I'm saying lots, you know, this world's gone small. I think I'm saying lots of things I don't understand. You, you can shake my tree, but you won't get me. He sounds so pathetic. Mm -hmm. Like he's almost like saying, you know, please leave me alone. Let me keep a piece of myself to myself. And the music, again, just works perfectly to suggest all of that. I want to put in a plug for Separate Beds off this album, which, yeah. again, I think is another great relationship song that these guys put together. Um, it, I found it very relatable. I think it's a beautifully uh, crafted pop music song. It's also written, um, and uh, it's one of my favorites on this album. And I'll, I mean, there's... <laughs> Yeah, I'll talk about how the album ends, which I, I try, which well, I, which actually, I, I just want to say one word yeah. about separate beds then before that we move yeah. on, because I just think I, there's this great line of separate beds where, where again, just 
Glenn Tilbrook selling Chris Difford so well, where he's like, your father didn't like, or your mother didn't like me. Uh, she thought I was on drugs. Your father didn't like me. Or your father well, didn't like of, her. She never yeah. peeled the spuds. <laughs> awesome. Just awesome. It's, it's, it's actually a very polite romance, like an innocent romance. And and, and that's the only reason it needs to exist because it's just a sweet uh, well, I little I document of like young love. I just identified with the song because I was at the age when I visited my girlfriend's parents' That's place, exactly and right. we had to stay in separate bedrooms, even though they, we weren't doing that at college. Exactly, so, and that's exactly. why it was so sweet because you understood it. It's like, exactly. well, okay, we're all prim and proper, but we could. Why don't we just go off together instead of doing all this silliness? <laughs> exactly. it, again, just so well observed. Again, Scott, you were saying, I, Mr. Bertram, I was interrupting you. Well, uh, one other note on separate beds. That line later where he twisted and says, "Your father, your father, father kind of like me. I helped him fix his car." I did that, right? I yeah. did that with my girlfriend's dad. I, we, we, we changed the brakes, right? Great I, way to win a I guy over. Great observed, <laughs> detailed slice of life song. And again, it's an, you could, this is another one where you get the McCartney-Lennon, you know, you, you get why people went there. I don't think it's correct, but yeah. you, you can understand it off of a song like this. I want to talk about how much I love the way the, the album ends, too, that the final two songs, uh, mm-hmm. Wrong Side of the Moon, which is a Jules Holland little nugget and his one little his one track on an album it's so delightful delightful is the word i want to use as i describe wrong side of the moon it is a delightful song if you don't enjoy it i can't help you it it has this wonderful little boogie woogie you know that's what jules plays an awful lot also a very overlooked but wonderful guitar solo from tilbrook on wrong side of the moon too it is a delightful song you should love it if you don't there's something wrong with you is there something wrong with me scott i just don't love it (laughs) he's saying it guys you guys don't understand this he's saying this because I said before the show started that this is the one song on the album I don't really like. And clearly, that much. there's something so wrong with you. He's twisting the screws on me, folks. This is really mean. I'm forgetting to remember to forget all the memories locked in my head. I'll be home, then you'll hear what I say. It seems forever started only yesterday. My heart keeps time, which passes very slow. When you're lonely without a place to go.
Uh, and then there at the top, the last song of the album is so great. It has that Motown, uh, almost Get Happy-esque motor uh, to it. And the way the, 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 those backing vocals come in, you know, turn of 21, with uh, Difford back there, helping out Tilbrook. And uh, lyrically about a woman who's uh, sleeping her way to the top. Um uh, uh, found in undercovers with some representative, the deal is affected, but still only tentative. Um, I do love that rhyme from Difford. It's a wonderful way to close the album. I love, I mean, the two songs that start, Pulling Muscles, Another Nail to My Heart, the two songs that end it, Wrong Side of the Moon, there at the top. Those are great bookends. I and and also, everything in between also great. Everything in between also great, yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we have to mention If I Didn't Love You, or at least I have to mention yeah. it. Yeah. Because I think, again, another beautifully written, well-observed song about a relationship, you know, and also just that line, if I didn't love you, I'd hate you. Oh, my God, that's just awesome. (laughs) (laughs) And it's also musically a very interesting track because it it opens fluttery, you know, with those little... That's right, that's right. And I don't even know how you characterize music like that. I don't actually think... Beatles-esque, that's how you characterize that. What did you say? Beatles-esque. Beatles, okay, yeah, right, but I'm I'm thinking of in terms of what was current at the time, and they're just... Even Elvis, who comes up right now, wasn't making music quite like that. Funny thing about it is that he wasn't making music quite like Squeeze's next album either. This one's fascinating. This is the Squeeze at the peak of their commercial success in Great Britain. Argie Bargie is huge. There's those you know big singles, and you know the the quality of the music is clearly being recognized also by the musical press. This is where people say, "Wow, the Difford and Tilbrook is this the new Lennon and McCartney?" It's a terrible label that should never have been appended to them because it was both inaccurate and I think it kind of messed their minds up. Yeah, uh, it didn't mess their minds up immediately, as we're gonna because this album is fantastic. But before we move further, I know Scott and Scott, you guys both wanted to talk about this subject because I think this is really when we get into East Side Story and even just how this album came together. You, know, we need to talk about this whole like the new Lennon and McCartney thing first. Sure, I mean. Again, you can see it. You can see why people made this comparison, especially back to back, Argy Bargy and East Side Story. I mean, they're two great albums. They're two very um, strongly written and produced albums. Um, they're full of sort of these, as I said, uh, these kind of Penny Lane slice of life songs. Um, but they're not the Beatles. I mean, the Beatles were far, in my opinion, were a far sort of more diverse band, I mean, musically, I mean. Um, they uh, The division of labor isn't like the Beatles. Either. That's right. There's there's not four guys in this band who were geniuses. You know, there's 
one and a half, well, two guys, let's say that, who are geniuses, and everybody else is a, ba- is a backup musician. But even that, with the songwriting team, both Lennon and McCartney wrote their own songs right. and lyrics. That's right. The sort of 50-50 face-to-face collaboration, even then, nobody had set rules. With these guys, it was more like Elton John and Bernie Taupin or Morrissey and Marr, for that matter. It was like one guy did the words, one guy did the music, and ne'er the twain really ever met. And especially Taupin and John, because they never wrote in the same room until far later on in their career. I mean, Differ would write the lyrics and send them off to 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 um, to, uh, to to Glenn, and 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 he'd write the the music. They weren't working together in the same room. That's the way that Taupin and John worked. Bernie Taupin wrote the lyrics, sent them off to Elton John. So, and people people think of that as like a weird and alienating way of creative collaboration. But like, uh, listen, uh, have you ever listened to any of those Elton John albums? It worked uh, out okay. It, it works. It works well. <laughs> Pretty great. Yeah, it worked really, really well. Really, really, really well. Yeah. <laughs> There's I, a reason people do it. It has it, it has results. I, I would also say one other thing that Squeeze didn't have that the Beatles had, which was George Martin. I mean, you know, a strong producer, somebody who can push back on things, someone who they, who you respect and who you listen to, is vitally important. And I don't think Squeeze ever had somebody like right. that in there. It's an, another thing that's going to become focused here you know, on the next album. But, but Mr. Bertram, before we move on, you were saying something. Yeah, just very uh, on the Beatles comparison. I don't want to talk about it too much here because I, I have to go back and look. But I, I don't know if a lot of those comments came until sort of after East Side Story and getting into the reviews of this album. And I do think, and both Glenn Tilbrook and, and Chris Difford, but especially Tilbrook, have said over and over again in interviews how much they suffered from the comparison, how much they then had it in their minds. They had to write these epically wonderful Beatles songs and they were Lennon and McCartney and they were the next. They were taking the baton. Everything had to be perfect and and, and, and really written to, to, to the maximum uh, possible capabilities. And I think it messed them up significantly for, I, I would argue, about th- a three-album stretch before they it's pulled off. It's a lot of pressure. It's but, a lot of pressure. And I, I've seen Bruce Springsteen talk about this, you know, very early in his career, he was going to be the new Dylan. New Dylan, yeah. And he, he has said publicly many times that that really got into his head for a while and really messed him up. And it, it, it made him... Uh, a much more self-conscious writer for a period of time because yeah. like, how do I live up to this? But, but, but before we, we talk about how they were messed up by the comparison, we talk about how great this next album is, East Side Story, originally designed to be produced by uh, four pretty decent guys. I mean, you can hear the beginnings of the self-consciousness now. It was supposed to be a double album. There were supposed to be four producers, yep. one for each side. So three of them are all, like, all from the scene. They're all those those guys you know and love. Elvis Costello was going to produce one side. Then uh, Dave Edmonds of Rockpile was going to produce another side. Then Nick Lowe was going to produce a third. And then the fourth, well, a guy who all of them loved and was sort of like maybe in a weird way a founding father of the scene, Paul McCartney. Everybody agreed, but nobody could get their calendar straight. And also, that's a lot of pressure, too. Yes. They never even had that material. They did not have two, two albums worth, in my opinion. So instead, it ends up that Elvis Costello uh, produces a vast majority of East Side Story, and Dave Edmonds produces one track, which is perhaps the most Costello-sounding track. You figure that out. Underneath <laughs> a bound here. This is going to be a fun one. But, Jeff, I know this is, I believe this is, your favorite Squeeze album. You Gosh, can start us cl- off talking know, about East Side Story. 
th- these things are so even. And so so I'm not even sure if it's going to be my favorite at the end of the day, but it's very close. This is their, I guess in a weird way, they're both artiest and poppiest album. And, it, it, and Scott stole my thunder right up front. This is the album that was supposed to be produced by Dave Edmonds. He could only ever complete one track. And, of course, it's the one track that doesn't sound like Dave Edmonds. <laughs> it sounds like Elvis Costello. And the Edmonds Meanwhile, track... The one that sounds like Edmonds was produced by Costello. And that's the one at the end of the album. Correct. So, yes, Correct. these people were acutely aware of these things. <laughs> I am, of course, talking about In Quintessence, which to me is just squeeze in every way. It's an album track. It's not a single. You're not going to find it on any of their greatest hits. It's why you got to get these records. It's why this record in particular holds together. This is about a guy who's just a genius in his own mind. What does he do? He spends his entire day just sitting in bed, smokes himself into double vision, leaves his mind on an indecision, thinks he's invented imagination, swears that God is some relation to him. Is the idea. This is the, the uh, well, boy, it, it kind of describes a lot of people you might know on Twitter, frankly, for that matter. People who are really impressed with their own posting histories, and that's about all they have to their name. And, of course, it's such this incredible rockabilly beat that, that, that hews back to Motown as well. It has that, I guess, maybe time is tight. Oh, absolutely. Now, it's it's, it's, it's don't, Costello's don't, Temptation, don't, don't, which, which was stolen from Time is Tight. Time it's is just tight. A so that's not Motown. That's Stax Volt. Yeah. So, but, but, yeah, you've got that. That really like hard, like you know, you know earthy R and B groove, which is funny because this is of course the most immediate and least sort of I guess sort of you know pop and considered orchestrated production okay. on the entire but- record. Acknowledging that it's got one of the best descriptions of masturbation in a music song, in a song ever written, in my opinion. Um, in the corner with his book and tissue, all he can do is pretend to miss you, closes his eyes as he sees her body, pulls funny faces, and that's his hobby. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's about the best description and the funniest description of it I can think of um, ever put in. Ever put in <laughs> And, and the guy is still convinced to this day that he's got it, – it's, it's, it's up to Junction guy maybe 10 years later. He's convinced <laughs> himself that he didn't do anything wrong after all. Well, that's his hobby. That's, that's hilarious. <laughs> Mr. Bertram, any thoughts on how this album opens? Yeah, well, you know, the album itself, East Side Story on the whole, with Costello producing, all involved uh, pretty much agree that, that he pushed them to, to write a non-squeeze album. Let's right. not sound like squeeze. So this is not a direct continuation of what we had 
on argy-bargy. It is a little different. It is it is hopping at times, kind of subgenre to, to subgenre. And, um, you know, there are some songs on here that, like, There's No Tomorrow or, 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 or later on where there's, there's very sparse instrumentation. Uh, there are songs that are very upbeat. There's, a, like, messed around to sort of, like I mentioned, an Edmonds-type rockabilly song. Uh, In Quintessence is an amazing way to start the album. I, I think, I don't know where to rank them, uh, but Someone Else's Heart, which is the very next song, is one of the other really fantastic songs on the record. It's a great differed lyric in which you have two lovers who end up both reading each other's, you know, diary slash old love letters and finding out that the same things that they're saying to each other, they once said to lovers in the past and ex-girlfriends. And, uh, uh, but, but the end, I guess, turns kind of sweet because they say it, our love was true enough to last. Um, yeah. so it's, you're suspicious. It, 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 you're suspicious because you, you said this to the, to the last person. She got nosy and my letters too and my notebook surprised to find that love is not so new so we both took someone else's heart and walked it through the dark a feeling so rich This is real. It, 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 this is the song that directly leads to. Uh, this is a connection to an earlier episode that we did on Elvis Costello. Where he produces this album, then you know, Chris Difford repays the favor by giving him a lyric for his next album, Imperial Bedroom. Mm-hmm. And that song is called "Boy with a Problem." Listen to "Boy with a Problem" again as a direct sequel to someone else's heart, and it makes a lot of sense. That's all I'm going to say. Oh, <laughs> I haven't done that. I'll, I will do that. I'm not so sure that the best song on East Side Story isn't uh, Woman's World. Uh, I, I think that's a tremendous accomplishment. I, I, I guess it's probably one of the more squeezish songs, right? It's probably one of the ones that might have fit in on, on the album past. But you have this, this, this housewife, and I, uh, I'm going to leave this for Jeff because I know he wants to comment about it coming right after Heaven. But yeah. uh, this housewife who, who does housewife things and then eventually cracks under the pressure. But there is, you know, as other Scott was saying, these just amazingly on-point observations from Difford in lyrics are really incredible. I, I, I love the, uh, you know, press the button on the toaster, tuck the sheets on the bed. But but earlier on, you know, she sees in the catalog a shiny new appliance, another roll swallowed by the wonders of science. That's an outstanding couplet. And sort yeah. of this, this um, insinuation that she was looking forward to doing all these things. And, oh, no, the appliance is going to come and replace me as housewife. And toward the end, she cracks, fed up with the glory. She abdicates her title. Sitting at a bar stool, she gives her day's recital. The family watches in horror as she staggers up the hallway and makes a sandwich. Um, Women's World, those lyrics set to just an incredibly melodic, beautiful, shimmering 
set of, of music from Tilburg. I am not so sure that Woman's World isn't my favorite song on the entire album. He's been so crazy. good case for that i also think again going back to the beatles comparison i mean the beatles didn't really do this they didn't make observational storytelling songs i mean you could make an argument for you know for the on the last side on the second side of abbey road maybe but uh, and and a little bit as i said earlier uh with um um uh, penny lane but they didn't really do this that often, and that, and they weren't, and they never got into this kind of detail as 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 they do on Women's World or even in Quintessence, um, and they certainly weren't funny, um, in a, in most of their songs that I can think of. Um, so I, I just think again that the Beatles comparison isn't really fair, and isn't really accurate. They were doing something different, and in some ways, whenever the Beatles tried to do it, Squeeze was kind of better at it. That's a that's my hot take. I don't think it's a very hot take. I think they they absolutely were better at it. And I think uh, you know just to go back to the point that Mr. Bertram was making about woman's world. I'm, I'm not going to stop laughing, by the way, when I say Mr. Someone. So just everybody get used to that. Um, you, sound, uh, you sound like Don Henley, by the way. <laughs> exactly. I'm an angry. I'm an, this is an angry episode of Political Beats. Everyone is suing one another, and we're talking through our lawyers. So, Mr. Bertram said apparently that Woman's World is an excellent piece of songwriting from Mr. Difford in Tilbrook. And he's right, but of course the contrast with the song that comes before it is also telling. I mean, the song is called Heaven, and this is not the kind of heaven that any of us necessarily feel proud about ever having lived in. This is a song, of, and, and again, I listen to a song like Heaven and I almost understand why Different and Tilbrook went along with John Cale on that first album and like perversed it up because this is where that kind of an approach works. It's a really good melody and it's a really good song and that everything about it is produced to make you queasy and mm-hmm. it's queasy the moment you realize that this song is about a guy who's out at the bars whoring it up, hooking up with people, stumbling home drunk, unshaven, smelly, boozed up, climbing into bed with his wife and saying, oh, that's heaven. Oh, I can just climb into this comfortable bed and my wife (laughs) is here. But I like all those other drunken sailors. I can indulge in that. And then she's always here at the end of the day. Smash cut woman's world. Okay. 
that's not an accident. That's not an accident. This album is formatted very, very, very intentionally. And of course, I don't even love the song, but F Hole followed by Labeled with Love. I mean, again, Labeled with Love is a song. It's my least favorite squeeze single. It's a country tune. It's them straight up doing a country song. It's about a sad old lady alcoholic. Taken in isolation, you could say it's a nice, like, well-observed character sketch, okay? I've never liked it on a melodic level that much. And I get even creepier vibes from it when I hear the album because where it follows is this F hole song, which is like another nightmarish thing where like, you know, like, you know, like, yes, we're going to have this weird garish romance and then you're going to hand me this guitar, but has an F hole and I'll play you all my country songs and I'll get every chord wrong. Smash cut. Labeled with love. All right. I'm going to defend labeled with love. Okay. Um, I think it's a, it's a lovely song. Uh, I think it again. It's a great storytelling song about the course of a relationship over forty years. Um, I also think them sort of branching out and trying to do a country song was ambitious and a bit of a risk. And I will say this: I mentioned this at the top of the show that I went and saw their play, the musical that they put together in nineteen eighty three called "Labeled with Love," and in the context of that musical because they, you know, they kind of stapled a story onto a bunch of these songs and, and linked them together. It really, really worked. Now, I'm one of maybe several thousand people who saw this thing at the best, <laughs> at, at the most, so it doesn't really count. But in that context, the song really, really worked. Yeah, we never asked you whether that show was good or not. <laughs> uh, it was it worked. I can't say that it was great. Um, and they weren't famous enough or big enough. I mean, this, and this was way before, you know, uh, stage uh, musicals made it to Broadway based on pop songs. Mm-hmm. This was way, right, way before right. that happened. And they, so they were, you know, 20 years too early and, you know, not nearly famous enough to, to pull it off. But as a fan of theirs, and by the way, I met them there. They were there, you know. Nice. Um, and, um, so that was it's a huge thrill for me, you know, never forget it. Um, so I and I've, I fully copped to the fact that I that my my criticism of this thing may be totally skewed by the fact that I met them and that I was a huge fan. And so <laughs> uh, it was a tiny theater, too. There couldn't have been more than 100 seats in it. Um, uh, but anyway, in the context of that thing, it, this song really worked well. But I've always loved the song. I just think it's a sweet song. It's kind of a throwaway but I think it really works. He became drinker and she became mother. She knew that one day she'd be one or the other. He ate himself older, drunk himself dizzy. Proud of her features, she kept herself free. 
Scott, I know you're our country fanatic on this show, so, so I'm sure you love it too. I right? do like it. I don't know if I love it. I'm I'm between you two. If I can if I can use that phrase. Uh, I do like it. I I I I think it is. They did the, you know every now and then there'll be this country nest that finds its way in, into their music, and I think generally it they they wear it pretty well. We we probably should, guys. I mean, probably uh, talk about you know the one squeeze song that anybody might know from the Mumbo band. Mumbo Jumbo, thank you. God, you stole my thunder, Scott. It is, in fact, the best track on the album. Those big, pounding piano chords and that ostentatious Glenn Tilburg melody with that whole, like, you know, the makeup box has always got ever such a lot of odds and sods in there to offer. What a, what a really audacious... Wait, you were, you, you were talking well, about Tempted. I don't disagree with that take about Mumbo Jumbo, but I was talking about a little tune called Tempted. Which leads us to mention, we haven't yet, Jules Holland is not here anymore. He left after the last album, though he will return shortly to Squeeze. So Paul, Do you guys know the backstory of that? Why he left? Yeah. Well, he had some opportunities to, to do TV, right? Well, I, the, the, yes. So if I saw Squeeze several times, you know, uh, in the early 80s. And when you saw them in those shows, Jules Holland was the lead he, he, he right. was the guy he was the lead of the band he was the sort of the the the, the ringmaster and the guy who introduced the songs and did the all the compere right and which, exactly. which by the way was, exactly why he ended up where he is right? exactly and 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 um he got offered a talk show off of that because he was such he was such a good <laughs> raconteur he was so good at it um that um somebody came to him and said you know why don't you do a talk show and that's why he left um uh, and it and it and and their live shows suffered after that because Til neither uh, Tilbrook or Difford had the personality that he had um, and could sort of you know be a front man. It's a shame for Squeeze, about. but you can't say it was the wrong move for no. Jules. No, 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 no. Yeah. it was the right move for Jules. Holland. Now he's a British institution, so That's I right. guess it worked out, right? That's right. That's so right. he so he's gone, and in his place is a guy named Paul Carrick. And Jeff mentioned earlier you would hear him later with Mike and the Mechanic singing The Living Years and a few other tunes. And you'd hear him solo, too. He had a song called said, Don't Shed a Tear that, that went top 20 or so in the late 80s. But I actually don't know that one. Yeah. If I played it for you, I bet you'd, you'd know it. It was kind of one of those songs. But previous to this, he was also at a band called Ace, which Ace. is a fantastic song. Yeah, well, this song. is the song that he's most famous for. Actually. How long has yeah. this been going on? And that's Paul Carrick singing for Ace. And he was, uh, I th I, it is Costello, I think, who suggested that he sing lead on Tempted. And again, turned out to be a pretty good choice. Now, I've heard the original Glenn Tilburg demo version of the song. It's unfortunately not available on YouTube, and I don't have the file. Arr, so there's no clip. Sorry, folks. But he could not have done it justice. It could not have been sung by anybody other than Paul Carrick. And it is melodically and somewhat lyrically. But certainly melodically, I think, an attempt by Tilbrook to actually reach a U.S. audience. And it's one of the reasons that it eventually did. It's a rugged song. It's got great bones. It's got this massive sing-along chorus that you can get into. My kids, actually my son, who's now nine, he's a big Elvis Costello fan because I'm raising him right. But <laughs> the first time I played him Tempted, he went bananas like he loved tempted and i, I don't want to make it too simplistic but it is one of the squeeze songs that perhaps is most easily accessible to adults and nine-year-olds and even story-wise right it's a pretty straightforward no twist storyline through tempted as well I bought another, some 
I was just going to say, uh, did you point out to your son that it's Elvis Costello doing the back? You know what? I that. did, in fact, tell him that. We, we talked about this on a Patreon <laughs> episode, actually. Yes. Oh. And I, by the way, here's my shameful confession. I didn't know that was Elvis until Scott told me yeah. on that show. I just thought that was other members of the band doing the falsetto and the, the big basso profondo. Uh, and that points up why Tempted still works. It's not just a solid song. It always keeps some variety in there to keep you mm -hmm. attentive. Right. So like, you know, that second verse where it's like they're trading vocals, although, of course, Elvis is trading with himself half the time. Uh, that's beautiful. And that works well. And then all those backing vocals and the pause, you know, what's been going on. And then ha! tempted by the fruit of another. It's an, as I said, old soul bones. Everything is perfectly produced. Somebody, you know, on the run up to the show said, oh, well, I'm going to listen, but you're not going to praise that. Their, their big stupid hit tempted are you I was like of course I'm gonna praise this song the song's amazing there's no reason to hate this song even though stunt casting yes Paul Carrick singing lead was stunt casting but there's no way you'd have ever heard this song in any anything remotely approaching the form that we have it now unless he had done it I'm at the car park the airport the baggage carousel Uh, I think there's a couple of things worth pointing out about this song. Also, first of all, just as an aside, if you listen to Elvis Costello's Trust album, which was recorded around the same time as this, there is a duet with Glenn Tilbrook. Oh, yeah, From a Whisper to a Scream. And we've talked about it a lot on this show. I love that song. I yes, love yes. that song. We've, we've probably spent a solid 15 minutes on that song alone around here because both Scott and I adore it. Yeah, it's a great song. So, um, And then um, just another quick aside. Um, there's a guy named Bob Lessetz, who was a music guy, a music business executive for years. He's been writing a newsletter about the music business for 30 years. When I first started getting it, it was faxed to me. That's how long. <laughs> um, and he also has a podcast, uh, cleverly called the Bob Lessetz Podcast. And he had Paul Carrick on last year. And Paul Carrick told this story, told a story from, from or his version of the story about this song, which was basically that uh, he had just jo joined Squeeze. He came into the studio, you know, just to hang out because um, he really didn't know those guys very well. He was he was hired to replace Jules Holland. And um, Tilburg had recorded the demo that, that Jeff referred to and nobody thought it really worked or what they weren't crazy about it. And Elvis Costello turned to Paul Carrick and said, you want to take a go with this? And he said, oh, sure, I'll give it a shot. And uh, nobody. And really... when Elvis did that, he knew. Because well, <laughs> he yeah, knew. It was yeah, well, I, I, in the interview, Carrick sort of plays it like, you know, I was just kind of, we were just fooling around. But you're probably right. I'm sure that was the <laughs> He already had the hit. Everybody knew this guy could sing. It was so, he, yeah, so he did a couple, he did a take, and everybody like looked at themselves like, oh, shit, he's got it. <laughs> um, and then they did another one, and that was it. They only did two takes. And, um, I I think he inferred that later 
th they went back in and did the Tilbrook part that originally Carrick had done the whole song as the lead and that they went back in later without telling him that uh, and Tilbrook did, you know added his part and that's the, and that's the version that got released. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, yeah, you just dropped in those vocals. And then I, I think that's the right move because he gets yeah. the first verse and the third verse and, the, of course, the choruses. But, yeah, that second verse changes it all up because there's no middle eight in the song. So you need that little contrast section. This is such a – this album, you know, we've been talking about individual components of East Side Story. But it really needs to be emphasized. There are 14 songs on this record. So that's actually longer than most. It's a seven songs per side. Every one of them is great. And there are things here that we haven't even – mentioned by name yet that are stunning is that love was the lead single from east side story it's two and a half minutes long That's again great. it's it's where the lennon mccartney comparisons came yeah. from because it is they come they compress so many chord changes mood changes key changes but into lennon that McCartney song. don't write like this though that's the thing they don't is, write lyrics like this. It, it reminds me actually more of Genesis than it does of the Beatles. And, and oh. there's a song by Genesis called Harold the Barrel that I've oh, always sure. talked about. Because <laughs> it compresses like a whole prog epic into two and a half minutes. This kind of does that, except it's even better in a way because this was a pop hit. It's a pop smash. And it does every – it winds, it twists, it turns, it never settles on itself. Is that love? Again – we hadn't talked about it right up until this second. It's one of the best songs on this record. Beat me up with your letters, your walkout notes. Funny how you still find me right here at home. Legs up with a book and a drink. Now is that love that's making you think? Mr. Burke. It's true. Well, you know, I have to point out this, is that the, the past three albums now, we have mentioned essentially every single song on the past three albums. That likely... I would like to mention every single song on the next one, but I can't. Well, well, the, I, I, I'd also say the run on the first side, I know no one, I know no one knows what sides are anymore, but I did because I had bought the record. You know, the run of the, of the songs on the first side, except for maybe... You know, I mean, we haven't mentioned Piccadilly either, which again is another sort of Sergeant Pepper esque. I like that song. song. I love it. Again, I think it's just really descriptive. It made me want. I have to go to see this place. Um, uh, that run, except for maybe Heaven, which is not my favorite song on the record, but that that the, the, the run from Inquintess and someone else's heart, Tempted Piccadilly. There's no tomorrow. Heaven. I'm sorry, not There's yeah. no tomorrow is the one that I'm not crazy about. Heaven is great. Women's World. That run is just an amazing run of songs, um, and uh, unparalleled in their career. I think they didn't. They never got back to this level. You know, after this, Mr. Bertram. I don't know if we'll be mentioning every song on any album to come, and that's A for timing purposes, because otherwise this should have been a three-part episode if that were the case, uh, but also because I think this is the moment, and Jeff's going to disagree here in a second, but I think this is the moment where the expectations 
and the pressures and the stress of those McCartney comparisons and perhaps just churning out so much incredible music the past three years, essentially, caught up with them. And I think there's a three-album swing here between Sweets from a Stranger, the Difford and Tilbrook duo album, and then Cozy Fan Tutti Fruity that I think is really the lull in their career. Um, there There are brilliant moments, there is no doubt, because these guys are super talented. But I think there's a tendency on these next couple of adverts to really overwrite and overthink almost everything uh, that is being written for for these next three efforts. We start with, with Sweets from a Stranger, and I'll just say I think it's a, it's a massive step down. Uh, I think there are songs here that don't work at all, uh, like On the Dance Floor. Uh, no, that's one of the best all right. the very no. first The very first dance, I think... They they just don't sound right. It's, uh, um, I, but on the other hand, I'll, I'll say the two the two I think that stand way above. Obviously, Black Coffee in Bed, which is uh, one that endures to this day, and another song that I think is very close to being another Black Coffee in Bed in terms of quality is one called Points of View. That is an outstanding, outstanding song with a great, great melody. really stand above the pack here and i know jeff's going to tell me i'm wrong here in about five seconds but i think sweets from a stranger is a fairly significant step down from east side story i'm not going to tell you you're wrong in about five seconds i'm going to tell you you're wrong in about five minutes because i want to (laughs) let scott talk first and i do have a thesis yes there is such a thing as a squeeze hot take you're about to hear it before we get to that i do want to just speak up for one song that really doesn't need people to speak up in its favor but everyone wants to say something about it and that's black coffee in bed this was my audition song Okay, because it's right there in my range, and I sing like Glenn Tilbrook, and that melody is so beautiful and so powerful and so haunting. The lyric is actually good; like it's a very good breakup song. You know, again, one of those like a hungover Sunday mornings, you're sitting in bed, and you're, you know, I, uh, I went out for another meaningless night, and I'm still like. You know, I'm still broken up about the girl who left me. Great melody. But the guitar solo, which is Jerry Garcia by any other name, it's a Jerry Garcia guitar solo. It is perfection. And the lyrics and the melody and then Elvis Costello suddenly coming in in the background with these 
big booming, you know, out with her friend. And you're like, whoa, there's Elvis there. It is an all-time classic. It's one that everybody agrees about. Uh, this is the one that, you know, it wasn't the last song on Singles 45s. It was the penultimate song, but it's just like that one that everybody just gets a warm feeling about when it comes on. First of all, it has to be noted that um, after Tempted and, 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 and East Side Story, they go out and tour and they have a song, their highest charting song in their career in the United States, Tempted uh, gets the number eight, top 10 song. And they're selling out much bigger venues. They are, um, they're getting on television, they're getting airplay. And then, uh, you know, which is the first time that's happened in their career. And then they get back to, to Great Britain and they start to record the next album and Paul Carrick leaves. Whoops. Uh, so this high point of success, which came through this guy who was a hired hand, essentially, um, this guy goes away and now they've got to... I don't. I don't know the backstory of that. I can only assume. Well, I can only like, assume this that he had such a. He has such a good singing voice. He should be somebody's lead singer. And then, in fact, that's what he became for Mike and the Mechanics. Right. That's right. That's right. And so, he would have reasonably said, like, "Hey, uh, we just had our biggest hit ever in America. Which, <laughs> you know, biggest hit in America. It's like top forty. That still sells like." 10 times more than the biggest hit in Britain does. That's right. That's Can I right. sing more than one song on the next album? And Glenn Tilbrook and Chris Difford were not about to say yes. Exactly. And, and that's why he was going to go. Exactly. But all of those fans who, you know, bought that single and saw those shows, uh, you know, when this album showed up and that guy wasn't on it, I think that might have been a problem. Yeah. Um, um, uh, so I think that I just want I just wanted to mention that, um, you know, I could put in a word for some, you know, for, for some of the other songs on this album that I that I really like. I'm a fan. I mean, in addition to Black Coffee in Bed, I'm a fan of When the Hangover Strikes. I really like that song. I really like I've Returned. Also, um, I think it's a really good. It's it, it's an all out rocker that they did. They did. You know, they they don't do a lot of those. And um, I thought it, I th I, th I think it really works. Both of those songs. So I sat inside my car and wonder. A headache in my head like the thunder I chewed my nails like a guilty victim I couldn't see or feel the night or nothing I wanted to explain but also
that there's a, there is a lot of fill. There is a bunch of filler on this also that, you know, after Archie Bargy and East Side Story, which had almost no filler, this was uh, this was disappointing. Although there were several sort of bonus tracks and B-sides on this album that I actually liked better than a lot of the songs on this album, which I guess we'll get to. I, mean, I sometimes feel like I'm living in another universe when it comes to this record. And I feel like, am I the only person who hears this correctly? <clears throat> I think one of the problems is that you come into this if you've been listening to the last few albums and you have a certain expectation from Squeeze. That's right. That's right. You want immediate hooks, immediate pop singles. You will you you will not find them here, my friend. You will find only evil here. <laughs> you, this is this is not for you. But this is still really good art pop music. And, and so, like I, I I think that when people dismiss songs like "Onto the Dance Floor," which again has that very weird drunken vibe, you, you, again the quiz, you get the quiz from it. You imagine a bunch of drunken hooligans and you know clubbers just tumbling their way onto the dance floor and the music vibrates and moves with it it works well it's the proposal she thought she'd never hear on a dance floor joy finds its creatures upon a lipstick kiss with an like songs like Out of Touch or I Can't Hold On. Scott already mounted an admirable defense of points of view, so I don't have to. But I'll tell you, one of the, my favorite songs in this record, other than Black Coffee, is Tongue Like a Knife. I don't understand. I think the second half of this record actually it doesn't really falter. The, the very first dance. Scott, okay. I can see the point. All right. That, uh, that's not a good song. <laughs> That should not have been there. That was a waste. They could have put on I Can't Get Up Anymore, which is a fun bonus track. And Get Your Gun. And, well, but, you know, that was a little bit later. I'm just going to only be fair and go with shit they had in the can. They only could have put that one on. But I'm oh, saying, I thought I Get Your Gun was recorded for in, in these sessions, and they just they I used believe, it later. Nope, not the case. Not okay, the case. Okay. But a song like Tongue Like a Knife, that is them. I get it. I get what Mr. Bertram here says when he says that they're succumbing to that Lennon-McCartney curse. We're like, oh, am I complicating the music? Am I complicating the lyrics? And that would become a true curse immediately afterwards. But right here, there's still a happy stability. There's a happy medium. And I think a song like Tongue Enough, this beautiful piano sort of groove, it has a glide that comes in. And I think it ends with, you know, like, you know, like a children's ballad at the end of it. It's a beautiful, weird, hybrid art rock track that Squeeze could have never done on, like, Cool for Cats. face for 
But also they couldn't have done on yeah, Cozy Fan Tutti Fruity either because they didn't they, they had gone, I think, too far off the rails at that point. And this, by the way, brings us to the end of what we you know, sort of people think of as the classic years of squeeze. This album didn't sell. It, it was good. Uh, it was not great. I think actually two of three of us don't even think it was good. Um, I think it was good. Um, but, you know, the the label said, okay, listen, you have one last single. And Glenn Tilburg said, yeah, I got something. He went to the band and said, here, I got these two songs. Which do you like? And they said, I, I really like this one, Andy, Get Your Gun. So he brought it to their producer. And before the band could ever convene to get back together, the producer had already recorded it for them. <laughs> With who playing? random studio people scott mr bertram i don't know if you know anybody who actually played on it i don't but nobody knows that except for those of you listening to this show it's one of their last truly classic singles everyone knows annie get your gun it always refers it reminds me of my best friend from college hey katie if you're out there listening you know i just think katie get your gun she wants drinks for everyone <laughs> she she's she's sweet she's a little bit loopy but she's solid She's just uh, she's a wild card in that deck, and you know that's that song to me. And I, I guess you know even if Squeeze per se didn't end up playing on it, it does close out their classic era perfectly. thought on Sweets from a Stranger. Uh, to me, this album personifies the phrase, victim of your own success. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you have to be able to put together three, to be, to be one of the greats, to be one of the memorables, you have to put together three consecutive albums. If you look at people's careers, that's the standard. Many people did many more than that, but you've got to do three. And um, this one just wasn't up to the standards of Archie Bargy and East Side Story. It had some good songs on it, but it didn't hold together the way those those first two albums did. And we've run through some of the possible reasons why, but uh, I can remember very clearly listening to this and being disappointed um, overall with it. And um, that was a shame. 
Yeah. By the way, did you have singles 45s and under uh, when you were a kid in college or in, in school? Because this is what comes out right after this era. It is the, you know, we've already mentioned it a couple times, but, you know, it's like we can't go through this show and not mention like the classic compilation. You know, I was a bit of a snob. Ah! About greatest hits albums at the I time. I love it. I love and I, it. since I had all the records and I had many of the singles, <laughs> I emailed you guys the other day. Um, I didn't buy. I didn't buy that album because, as I said, I was a bit of a snob about. That's records. so high fidelity of you. I love it. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. <laughs> all right, Scott. You want to, you want to explain what happens now? We can we can sort of we're gonna do what we aren't going to ignore this music but i think we, we all agree that like the, the greatness of squeeze was really focused in this era yes they're not they're not extinct there are some very good songs and in fact i think their, their next band album's pretty good but you know what we're dealing with now is sort of like you know picking themselves back up from sort of the, the pressures or the wreckage of those pressures uh, it also and, should be mentioned that there were some personal issues going on mm-hmm. with Differed, especially a little bit Tilbrook too, but you know, I, I believe Differed had some alcohol issues, and uh, drug issues too. Yeah, I and mean, he's talking about it publicly. He did a podcast last year mm-hmm. uh, uh, that, that, where he talked. Uh, he wrote a book also. Yes. I mean, he wrote a book about it, so it's not. We're not speaking no school here. Um, and you know, when your lyricist, you know, goes on a, you know, binge. And that's problematic. We've seen that a million times, and that's a part of what happened here as well. I think. Uh, you know, Johnny Marr is one of the greatest so- musical songwriters ever, but man, he really does need Morrissey writing those lyrics <laughs> <laughs> because uh, he hadn't really been up to much since the end of the Smiths. And so, yeah, Mr. Bertram, you yeah. want to sort of set well, us up? Yeah, for, I mean, from this point forward, we essentially want to want to tell the story and 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 hit some highlights. I think through the rest of their career. Uh, they they break up after uh, Sweet from a Stranger stiffs and would not get the band back together for a couple of years. But in between, uh, they do this musical that Scott saw uh, yeah. called Lab- uh, Labeled with Love. And they release this duo album, Differed and Tilbrook. That's just what it's called. And, you know, as we said, Differed and Tilbrook essentially are the band. So how different is this from... Squeeze music, and quite the answer is quite a bit different. <laughs> this is sort of a a naked uh, grab t- toward like a like a hollow note sort of blue eyed soul success, right? Oh no, Even no, the- no! It's worse, Scott. It's worse than that. Have you ever heard Sir La Mer by the Moody Blues? I don't believe I have. Also produced, I believe, by Tony Fisconti, and that's that's kind of the problem here. Uh, it's it's just the I am not. A guy who normally complains about the sound of quote 80s music i grew up in the 80s i love it i like a lot of those keyboard and drum sounds i'm not reflexively opposed to it this is the worst of 80s sound it's not cut the crap level worse but it's just it's it's much more professional than that but it's still bad tony visconti great producer but, you know, as I joked with Scott right before we started the show, maybe David Bowie ditched them around this time for a while for a reason. There are two songs on here that are worth salvaging. They're not great, but they're better than the rest. Uh, one right. is Love's Crashing Waves, which I think was the single, and one called Picking Up the Pieces, which is directly afterwards. And the rest, you can pretty much leave them behind. So my prescription Let's go, she went. 
unless Scott has other thoughts. No, I, I, I agree with this. <laughs> I, again, I remember buying this album, Sight Unheard or Sound Unheard, whatever, and uh, just being devastated about oh <laughs> i can feel the pain even from here man yeah that, that i must mean hurt. again i was huge fans of these guys it's like I, what happened right yeah exactly and of course i didn't know anything about the personal issues going on at the time or any of the you know the other stuff i was just a fan and um uh it was crushingly disappointing to me um and um i kind of got off the bus for a while yeah. at the point they didn't like it either, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> so, no, we did not. We and did they, not. They, just, they said, you know what, uh, uh, let's try Squeeze again as a concept. And so here's actually an album that – this is not one that I'm going to go to the walls, to barricades, to defend. But I think we actually all little, we disagree somewhat about. And that's Cozy Fan Tutti Fruity, another dumb pun, right? Cozy Fan Tutti, Tutti Fruity. Okay, yeah, you get it. Um, 1985, it's their reunion album. I actually think it has quite a bit to recommend it. It's weird. It's already it is indelibly 80s, but there are good songs on this, and I think there are also good productions on it as well. So I, I'm just going to say there's a song here called King George Street. I think it was released as a single, but um, it would never have succeeded. It, it's Again, you know, Scott will say this is them lost hopelessly in their I'm Lennon-McCartney phase. But yes, it is good, weird, like not pop in terms of chart success pop, but pop in terms of its aesthetics music. really love I learned how to pray along the same lines. Now, I'm the guy who's making a sort of weak argument for this, and I know <laughs> everyone else hates it, so I'm just going to throw myself to the lions. Take me. Eat me. Yeah, I don't think it's very good. Um, Jules Holland comes back for the reunion, and so does Gavin, uh, their, their drummer, and uh, and then Keith Wilkinson, who had played bass on the solo, or the duo record, stays on as bassist, and would actually stay on for quite a while. But I think Cozy Fan Tutti Frutti suffers this, the exact same from the exact same problems that plague Sweets from a Stranger. It is it is just so overly mannered. It is so overwritten and languid in many places. Mm-hmm. Um, it just yeah, doesn't... There's no right. spark. There's, 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 there's no immediacy. There's, there's nothing. no immediacy. There's no, there's no pulling muscles from this It, it also here. takes itself very, very seriously. Well, there's that's no cozy fan <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, 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 it's just a little bit pompous. And... Um, you know, maybe we could have a quick discussion of like how do such how do because we've seen it many times. How do talented people lose it like this very quickly within the course of two records? They seem to have gone completely off the tracks and forgot who they were and what they were. And again, if this is not unique to Squeeze, this we've seen this happen many, 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 many times. Not just in music. I've seen it happen in the music and television business as well. People have hit right, movies or hit TV shows, and then all of a sudden they just can't do it anymore. Um, it's it, you know, it's an interesting phenomenon. If we knew the answer to it, ev- everything would be a hit. But um, 
uh, it's a very famous story, uh, just along these lines. Uh, Peter Goober and uh, John, what's the guy's name? They ran Sony in the 1980s, and at one point they had to go over to, to, to Japan. Uh, they ran Columbia Pictures, which was owned by Sony, I should say. And at one point they had to go over to Japan to report to the head of Sony, you know, what they were up to. And they sat in front of the guy and he said, well, look, this year uh, we're going to make 10 movies. Five of them will be good. It will we'll do well. Two of them will be enormous hits and the rest of them will be bombs. And the guy at Sony looks at them and says, well, why don't you just make the hits? Well, <laughs> you, can't, you can't do that, yeah. you know? And um, so, and, and I, I think that's, you know, I think a lot of record. La- I think a lot of record label executives go into it like that. Is have that well, point you know well. why? Is you never know. I mean, we tell the story about I heard it through the grapevine on this show a couple of times, where Barry Gordy was convinced that Marvin Gaye is like this is not a hit, so we wouldn't let him release it. And it was only later when it came out on the album and the DJ started playing it that it became like literally people think it's like the greatest single in the history of music. So sometimes the suits get it wrong. Which oh, is why you have the suits get it wrong. As a former suit, I can tell you that. Uh, <laughs> but they didn't get it wrong on these albums necessarily. Is the no, question. they did not. They did not. I mean, you also suit. You know, you can't sell. You can't sell bad records. You know, and um, Paula Abdul before, would beg to differ. Well, well, maybe. Um, ah, there are there are. I think I think singles are a different animal to a certain extent. Um, but albums are, are much more difficult to sell. And, um, but again, you know, they just lost it and for whatever reason. And again, it's not unique to them. But they didn't commercially lose it, which is fascinating because it's the next album where they regained their bearings. Yeah, and I... And in I, fact, Babylon and on. The 1986-87, and this is the one that I checked out from the library and I kind of frankly, I noped out about, but this is the one that actually has their two biggest American hits. Yeah, and I, you know, to, to follow up on what Scott was saying, I actually think that there is some credit to be given to uh, Difford and and Tilbrook that they actually pulled out of what was happening the past three albums. And I think it starts, it's not complete here, but it starts here on Battle right. On and On. And essentially, past this point, they don't make a bad album anymore. They make albums with a couple of high points and right. some songs that maybe would have been b-sides or left off you know the the great albums in their career but they they sort of figure out how to do what they do again and it has to start on babylon and on and i think what it was starts... the line that was it was it different it was a tilburg who said like i just started have to i have to write for myself yeah because if, if i try to write for what i think other people want me to do uh it's gonna be garbage it just never works right babylon and on is 80s pop done in squeeze style and that's all the good and all the bad and and there's some bad you know, the production is not where it should be on some of these songs uh every bad choice is magnified by about a hundredfold because of how it's yeah. sort of highlighted in the mix and yet uh, oh, I, I have to say this note i say it's produced like a huey lewis album and I, I love Huey Lewis. Uh, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? I, no, it's he, the, it's he, the means, brightness. he means he's actually a serial killer. And uh, <laughs> by the way, you want to see his Phil Collins collection. It's, it, <laughs> it's the brightness. It's the punchiness. It's the loud metronomic drums. It's sort of those, the, the tasteful organ fills just here and there. All the rough edges have been sanded. I don't think it serves the songs as well as a sort of production style we'd hear on the next album would for many of these songs. But I think they're at least writing in a way 
that will bring them back to a place where um, it's a little more recognizable. I think actually I, I secretly resent this record because I've always had the the, the song eight five three five nine three seven stuck in my head ever since I checked that CD out from the library. <laughs> that damn earworm! I hate it and I love it. I, I I don't love it in a way I could rationally defend, but I've when you when you have something that's been a memory since you were nine. Scott, do you, I mean, do you like this one? Are we wrong? Um, I think it's okay. I, look, Hourglass, yes, it, it 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 was one of their biggest hits, but I think that had more. To, we're deep in we're we're at the at the high point of the MTV era right now, and I think the video of Hourglass had a lot to do with the success of that song. I don't think it was because of the song, because I don't think it's one of their. I wouldn't put it in the top ten for me. Um, so I don't. The, the fact that they had a big hit on it. At this point in time, I don't think is really relevant in in the overall sort of arc of their career. Um, I, it's okay. It's not again. It's not nearly up to the level of Argy Bargy or East Side Story or even Cool for Cats, in my opinion. There's not. I mean, there's a song called Footsteps on here, in which Gilson Lavis, their drummer, has one of his best moments with the band. There's a really nice beat. There's a waltz time song called Tough Love that I think is pretty good. And again, just there are there are a number of songs where you get just an awful guitar tone or just yeah. a bad decision that sort of really sticks out like sore thumbs. Um, but I do think, and I think Jeff agrees, that at least in my mind, sort of the, the recovery, uh, well, the bounce know, Scott, back. Scott, perhaps I could phrase it better. Let me be frank. <laughs> Yeah. The album Frank is frankly the best Frank that we could have ever, frankly, have hoped to have from an album named Frank. Um, it involves a man whose name is Frank. Maybe it does. And there are even good B-sides named Frank and Frank's bag. Um, I think, actually, kidding aside, Scott and I both agree this is half of a really great Squeeze album. I agree and, with that. And half of a, oh, man. A lot just, of filler. They could have, they could have, they should have waited a little bit. But Scott, I interrupted you as I often do. No, it's Frank. You knew exactly what I was going to say. Um, this is, uh, this is from 89, right? And it, it's not like it was, it was better commercially. It, it didn't sell. It went to 113 on the charts. So even after having some single success from Babylon and on, it didn't continue on through Frank. And I, I just think that, yeah, as Jeff said, it's it's half of a pretty great Squeeze album and probably is their most consistent album post-reunion. There's a stretch here 
Uh, if it's love was the was the lead single and didn't do anything. But the, the three by the way, by the way, Scott, I want to point out between nineteen eighty seven, uh, which was Babylon and on, and nineteen eighty nine, which was Frank, you know what happened? Appetite for destruction. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, like music trends well, yeah. change. That's, yeah, that's what I was gonna say, was that you have to sort of look at this in the context of the over what was happening in the you know, in the in the outside world, so to speak. And they this album is an anachronism. You know, at, 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 really, which, if you which look at it, never bothered me because I listen to music out of time. But in its moment, yes, it must have sounded very inappropriate. Yeah. Exactly, and I hadn't heard this album in 25 years before I listened to it in preparation for this show. And I actually, it's better than I remembered it. Mm-hmm. Um, and hold because and, you don't and, have the expectations that it's going to sound like the stuff that's on the radio. That's right. right. And, but it also the other like the, the the last couple of albums that we just spoke about sounded anachronistic to me they sounded like you know the, the, the they didn't age well let's put it that way right this one uh, holds up much better i think yeah, um, it does. both in terms of the writing the production and the music there's Mr. Bartram. yeah there's a three song run that is the finest three song run of songs that they've had since east side story and that's uh, Peyton Place, Rose I Said, and Slaughtered, Gutted, and Heartbroken. That's, that's the one. That's my favorite. <laughs> that is I'd the add, other I'd one. I added it love in there, too. I think that's a really good song. Now, they play, they, which they play live, and they do a really great live version of it. So I may be a little bit prejudiced by that. <laughs> Slaughtered, Gutted, and Heartbroken is the other song, Jeff, that I have noted that, yes, okay, Difford's vocals there. He's he's probably the right one to sing that song. Oh, who could who could uh, Who could do it? It has to be him, yes. And, but I think Peyton Place... I think Peyton Place is the best song on the record. I think Peyton Place might be the best song post-reunion. It has yes. a dynamite chorus, and the way it slides into it and gets there from the verse is just brilliant. Uh, Jules Holland, who's still around here, plays a, a wonderful piano section. It is a intricately structured song that works really well. Peyton Place is really the highlight of the album, but there are a lot of really good songs here and they just didn't have enough to sort of pull off a, a late career renaissance sort of sort of album but I, I think it is the best post reunion album You guys ever listen to the live album that they did after this around sure. and about sure. kinda, it's kind of good actually i mean i don't know if i'm proud of saying this but i actually prefer that version of up the junction um because i've never been a super huge fan of the studio production of the uh the, the original cool for cats version so I, I like it when it's it's got a much more modern sounding feel to it i don't know when they have a good group of musicians in that band and it rotates all the time yeah they are an excellent live band they are because the music better. the music is good i mean you can't yeah. you, you can't yes. defeat those songs um and i i've seen them relatively re- i saw them in 20 
2018 or late early 2019 in Santa Barbara with a you know they had an entirely new band behind the, the two of them um and they were great they were great and the crowd loved it now the crowd is all you know people <laughs> in their 50s and 60s now um uh although some of them brought their kids but they, they they were great and um they play the hits and they play them really well and they play a couple of songs off of this album which they call the album of time for god <laughs> um um but they're it's interesting that they are they are able to reproduce these songs better live than a lot of times than they were recorded. Well, that actually brings me, we're kind of skipping out here, but we don't really need to observe strict chronological order here at this point. They did this album called Spot the Difference, right? Right. Where, which is, like, I, was, was the logic here really the truly the Taylor Swiftian logic where they were going to retake control of the masters by recording oh, yes. the exact Absolutely. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yes. For sure. They, they said that many times. Yep. They said it at the time. Okay, uh, so... Th- Here's the weird thing about it. The masters genuinely sound almost exactly like the originals. The vocals inevitably don't, and that's the problem with it because Glenn's voice has aged ever so much, and you can mm-hmm. just tell the difference. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, 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 you know I, I jumped way out of order there. I mean, we, we should talk about these last few albums. There, there's one in particular, I guess, that those all five hardcore squeeze fans out there are going to just murder us if we don't talk about which is some fantastic place yeah. i don't care about play that much but i i know that that different tilbrook themselves think the title track is one of the best songs they've ever written they do i, I do i agree with i think it's i think it's a great song again they play it live really well um and i, I think it is a throwback to Archie bargy very mm-hmm. much it's one of the few songs that they've written in the same room and they said it took about 10 minutes and it's about uh, I think Glenn's first real girlfriend, who was a friend of the band and ended up dying of cancer at some point. And so that it sort of thematically brings the guys together because they're both friends with her. And they, they, they love that song. They love the music. They love the lyrics. Chris Difford's uh, memoir is titled Some Fantastic Place. If you see them in any interview talk about you know their favorite songs, they will always mention the title track from Some Fantastic Place. And uh, I, I, agree with, I agree with Scott. It really is a knockout kind of track building from this simple acoustic layout to eventually kind of gospel organ hand claps and in fact the guitar solo in the song i i, I read was written way back in 1973 like wow. this, i don't know it, you know I, you have pieces of music. I, that's, that's what it said i have the hope that when it's time for me to come away that she'll be Actually, though, the album itself is not terrible either. This is a song called Third Rail that's pretty good on, on some fantastic place. Uh, Paul Car- yeah, Paul Carrick's back here, and Pete Thomas plays drums. So it probably is the best iteration of Squeeze from a talent 
perspective uh, in, in this entire you know. Uh, I love how era. it's all like all these various ga- people who are just sort of like just notable personalities in, out. in that right. scene, right? It's like uh, here's a guy from Rockpile, here's a guy from the Attractions, here's a guy yeah. from Ace, you know, like, exactly <laughs> because it's a comfortable shoe. Everybody knows how to wear. Yep. I, I and that's the thing about the later era Squeeze albums is that these actually once they return to just you know the nuts and bolts of songwriting. You're no longer getting these sort of these like crazy advances in either production technique. They're not leading the charts. They're not trying to push the envelope. They're just writing music for themselves. And so what that results in is some music occasionally that is brilliant. But you know, I, I, I hate to say this, but it is always the case. If you're only doing it for yourself, you don't have that pressure. Mm-hmm. You don't have that quality control where it's like I will, again I will be working for bus fare if I do not make the best possible album I can make, which is why these later period albums that always have some great songs on them. But you know I don't feel like it, it doesn't you know I don't feel like we are doing them an injustice by not no. covering them up. But again, also you have to look at this in the context of the larger world, and in the larger world, hip hop is dominant, you know, and. These or, guys, or rap rock, you know, or, or, you know, or rap like, rock, exactly. God. I mean, and these guys are still doing, you know, Sergeant Pepper, or they're, you know, or, 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 or RG Barger East Side Story. That they, that was the same fate that Neil Finn and Crowded House had to deal with, you know, like it's just like writing these very like well written pop bands, songs, you know. Yeah, I mean, all of the bands of this era, you know, had to deal with this, and all of them, you know, were put in the back seat essentially in terms of pop culture. Um, because of that the world changed and they had no ability to change with it that's not who they were they couldn't do it it's not like they're going to start making you know rap rock they couldn't do that um and the few people that survived this era i'm thinking about bruce springsteen now just because you know somehow he came through he could have easily been in the same boat as these guys and he figured out a way to get through it now he was a much bigger star and had a much big, de- 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 much more devoted audience, and you know, maybe had his finger on the pulse of things. Mm-hmm. But these guys did, and it's, and 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 maybe that was easier because he was American in terms of our audience. I don't know. It's an interesting conversation to have. It's like, how, you know, who who threaded their way through this and who didn't, and why. Just to to close the story, I guess they there's a couple of other albums, Ridiculous and Domino, and everyone seems to hate Domino, including uh, all actual people who played on the album. <laughs> Squeeze breaks up again, and they go through a period where Difford and, and Tilbrook really aren't talking. If you go on, uh, it was on, even the subject of a VH1. Can yes. we get this band back together? Episode. It's on I YouTube. Watched, I watched it at the time. I felt so sad because I was the only person watching who cared about Squeeze. <laughs> and uh, spoiler: they did not get back together at that point. No, but they that, did get back together a few years later. At least Difford and Tilbrook did with a brand new band and they've put out two albums in the past decade 2015 2017 and i gotta tell you i've heard them they're not bad i mean they essentially continue some fantastic place in this a couple of really good songs and some songs that that they like personally and uh i think especially cradle to grave which is the first of these two really late era albums is really not bad at all the title track is very good there's a song called haywire on there which i mentioned earlier every now and then there'll be this country sort of lilt that that will seep into the music and haywire has that feel to it very good i'm thinking about the images i had inside my head there's not much to imagine in that center spread 
play a few of those songs in 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 concert now these days and they're pretty well received and and, you know jeff you mentioned that tilburg's voice has lost a little bit i I would say less than you would expect he's 64 65 right he's still pretty pretty good voice how high he has to sing in his range for the classic tunes and the fact that they have not changed the keys in those songs for the most part i'm impressed at the fact that it holds up yeah I'd also say if you go, I mentioned this earlier that that Glenn Tilburg did a bunch of covers during the pandemic and posted them on Instagram. If you go back and and uh, watch those things, there's a cover of uh, Sly Stone's Everyday People that is very spectacular, good. Yeah. spectacular. Um, there's a cover that di- different and Tilburg did that, that that's on YouTube for the BBC of Please Please Me. That is also great and oh original. i haven't heard that that sounds oh. like it would be delightful oh, oh. You should, i'll send you the link it's the beatles really good. they're doing yeah. the beatles mm-hmm. oh yep, that'd yep, be yep, great yep. it's 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 and they and they really do make it their own um uh, it's 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 kind of fascinating so the the point of this is they have the talent they have the ability something else is going on here i don't i don't know what it is it's you know if again if we knew well, I mean, at, this point, at this point so. the industry has changed for irrevocably time has passed them up and you know like and i think they understand that too they're content hey like when were they they're 95 years old right now something like that i don't know no no, 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 no they're in their 50s or 60s but uh, no but yeah. i mean like i think they, they're at peace with this but yeah. like yes oh yeah i think so too i think so too tilburg is playing a lot with his kids which obviously he's he's, he's seen on those covers it's all done with his family right and uh he you can see he's just having a blast and that's great it's great to see yeah there's a song on the most recent album which is essentially Tilbrook and family. I mean, if you look at the liner notes, his 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 kids who are playing on the mm-hmm. song, not the rest of Squeeze. So mm-hmm. uh, he has that going for him. I mean, I I think I just want to kind of close by emphasizing that like this is a band that had this this very brief and, and kind of concentrated efflorescence in that late seventies, early eighties period. But that's not nothing because that was one of the most exciting periods and competitive periods that's of right. all of music yeah. that's right sort of modern popular music you know you ha- you have your british invasion era 60s and then i think really you have everything that happened after that giant punk explosion the post punk ferment that was the other big you know you know atom bomb level you know new creation of music squeeze distinguished themselves among some of the toughest peers in the business the fact that they aren't remembered now in the same way that they were in their day is you know unfortunately one of those weird tricks of you know time and career and chronology and you know bad decisions and things like that that you know can't be undone but the music is there and it is good and damn it leslie nope was right (laughs) what what did she say she said that music that things that will last forever the mona lisa and the music of squeeze 
<laughs> well, look, that's why it's important to do shows like this. I mean, I think you guys do a really right. important public service of not just Squeeze, many, many of the bands that you've covered, reminding exactly. people or exposing new people to their work. I think that's a really, really important thing to do. We're here to serve, my friend. There you Mr. go. Mr. Bertram. That's where we ended this uh, look at the music and career of Squeeze. And we come to the show, part of the show, where we each give you the two albums you must own, the five songs you must hear, you should hear from our featured band. And we start with our guest, Scott Ibergut, who is the CEO of Ricochet.com and the Ricochet Audio Network. Also find them at the Hoover Institution's Productions, too. Scott, give us your two albums and your five songs. My two albums, obviously, have to be Archie Bargy and East Side Story. And my five songs, um, not in any particular order, by the way, are Pulling Muscle Some Shell, Another Nail in My Heart, Farfisa Beat, Piccadilly, and Tempted. Um, my two albums are the same, uh, Margie Bargy and East Side Story. And the five songs, and by the way, I mean, you just... There's no five songs answer for this show. I mean, no, it, 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 it's I, I can I can come up with another five right now. Yeah. Squeeze Squeeze are bizarre in the fact that they have not five songs, but not thirty songs. There are like twenty songs you can argue about, but if you try to reduce it to five, well, that's stupid. And now, Scott, go be stupid. Yeah, I'll be stupid. So, up the junction from uh, from Cool for Cats, uh, my favorite song, another nail in my heart. And then we'll skip around a bit, go to East Side Story. I think Woman's World is the, the best song on that record. Um, I'm going to surprise Jeff by picking one from an album I don't love, which is Points of View. He was able to sell me at least on that track from Sweet Soul right. Stranger. It's a minor victory. And then uh, Late Career, I'm going to pick one from the Late Career. I think Peyton Place is well, well worth hearing from Frank as an example of what they were able to do after sort of picking themselves off the floor and... Um, remembering or or figuring out once again how to do that thing they did so well jeff over to you um okay so for my two albums you know i i tried to get cute about this but there's no reason to be stupid it is clearly going to be argy bargy or argy bargy i don't know how you pronounce it we're not british what do we know well it's all the same to me you know I, i speak american over here and then east side story um, and, and those are the two, and, and they're just fantastic albums as albums, not just as individual songs. But yeah, they deserve to be heard in their format. As for the five songs, this is a stupid exercise because you just there's more than five. But up the junction, I agree with Scott. It's not only the best song on Cool for Cats; it's one of the best pop songs ever written. It's just such a beautiful narrative. Pulling muscles from the shell. I used actually at least two f bombs describing this song <laughs> it, it, during the show. That's how much I love it. Um, three, black coffee in bed off of Sweets from a Stranger. I like, of course, most of this album, unlike everyone else. But I'm gonna not be dumb. I'm gonna go with the the classic, my audition piece. Um, I'm going to do one from their sort of post-Heyday era. Scott did Peyton Place. I was tempted to go with that. But because he picked Peyton Place from Frank, I'm going to go with Slaughtered, Gutted, and Heartbroken, which is also great from that record. And it proves it's like they didn't just like lose it forever. It was just like times changed, times shifted. They, you know, they remained who they were. And I guess I'm going to end with the song that I, I, I mentioned as a joke, but is really actually my single favorite song on East Side Story. And that's Mumbo Jumbo. It's a song about a girl sitting at home, you know, like she's getting 
ready for a date. She's putting on her eyebrows and her makeup and her toenails are getting plucked and she doesn't know what to do with her social calendar and all that really matters is that Glenn Tilbrook is going up and down that scale like a maniac <laughs> with one of the most beautifully athletic melodic lines of his entire career and you know Paul Carrick you think of him as the singer you know, on Tempted but he also could play a pretty decent piano and he pounds away on a song that to me has always just kind of been quintessential squeeze as an album track you've never heard of it the title itself suggests it might just be a throwaway <laughs> it's the opposite it's everything that was ever great about this band Kissing girls and boyish girls for all the bottom line is for people who are not uh, who have not really heard squeeze just go to your streaming service of choice and listen to cool for cats Archie bargy and east side story that, that, then they come up with your own five songs because they're going to come most of them uh, scott bertram's choice uh, being the exception are going to come from those three albums um that's the squeeze story right there and uh, with some with, with a couple of notable exceptions that's all you got to do just listen to those three albums there's the political beach look at squeeze we thank our guest for finally allowing us to do this show at scott immergut he's the ceo of ricochet.com the ricochet audio network producer of the ricochet podcast glop culture podcast find about the hoover institutions work to uncommon knowledge and good fellows over there scott thanks so much for joining us my pleasure huge fan as you guys know uh, we need another white whale. Oh, we have a bunch of white whale bands. I don't know what I'm talking about. They all show up on our hey, exclusive Fair content Park Convention, episodes. Joni Mitchell fans. Oh, God, I can name 17 other yeah. acts. Ooh, I have a... Well, I'll talk to you guys about yeah. that. <laughs> I, have, I have a guest for you. Find, uh, find Jeff on Twitter at EsotericCD. Uh, I'm Scott Bertram on Twitter at Scott Bertram. Again, patreon.com slash political beat support the show help us do more squeeze type episodes entry level mid-level and of course upper level best friend level there at patreon.com slash political beats and we come to the part of the show where we thank some of our patreon supporters for allowing us to do the show and keeping the show ad free thank you kevin mayfield philip maddox just carl dave just dave in fact too jamie mccleary dan goldbeck Michael O'Connor, Pat Mruz, Jonathan Wells, Jeremy G, Chet Archbold, and John McFerrin. Thanks to you individually and all of our Patreon supporters out there. Find more at patreon.com slash politicalbeats. Subscribe to the feed for new episodes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and over at nationalreview.com. Find us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at political underscore beats. 
This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats.